Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was trying to get this podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show into all the apps people like to listen? How do I make money for my podcast? The answer to every one of these questions is really simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now, Anchor can match with you great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast. That means you can get paid to podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now by reading this ad. I use Anchor in a simple matter. I take my podcast episodes, edit them in Premiere, upload them to Anchor and schedule them and set my tags and my description, all that good stuff. Just sit back and let it distribute to all the platforms. It's very simple and very easy to use and very user-friendly. So if you've always wanted to start a podcast, make money doing it, go to anchor.fm slash start. That's anchor.fm slash start to join me and a diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. I can't wait to hear your podcast. And doing a lot of kind of doc work or work for hire. Yeah. It was always like, yeah, well, you know, this is cool, but you know, my dream is actually to make movies. My frame chasers out there, you know already know what it is. It's a new episode of Chasing the Frame, and today I'm with Rafi Rivero. Rafi, how are you today, man? What up? How you doing? Dude, I'm good, man. I'm, how are you? I'm doing well, yeah. Awesome. So uh, before we get into the cast, I just want to thank everyone for listening, and remember, you know, I can't do this without you guys. Like, you know, we have a Patreon out there. If you you are subscribed or involved in that, thank you. If you aren't, thank you also, because you are listening to this right now, and I appreciate everything you guys are doing, uh, getting the word out there, hopefully. And, you know, I can't do this without my hashtag Frame Chasers. And again, guys, also, just to let you know, we do have t-shirts now. And that's the hashtag Frame Chaser t-shirt at teespring.com slash stores slash chasing dash the dash frame. We've got men's and women's t-shirts in V-neck and crew neck. And they range about $20 to about $25.99 for that tri-blend shirt. They're really soft, really comfy. I highly recommend them if you want them. Because I have them. I have two, and I'm I'm in love with them. So uh, let's get to it, guys. Let's, you know, do what we do and get ready to chase those frames today. So, Rafi, first question for you. Where are you from originally? Uh, originally from Washington, D.C., uh, but I also grew up kind of half in D.C., half in Boston. Oh, nice. Um, so the second question I have for you is, what was the first, you know, movie, TV show, actor, director that spoke to you and you said to yourself, I want to do this. I want to make stuff and create uh, I mean, I, I remember in, in like high school mm. feeling like I wanted to make movies, but I can't remember. It was like, I had the feeling I wanted to make movies before I saw Pulp Fiction. And when I saw Pulp Fiction, I was like, Oh my God, like yeah. that's what I want to do. Um, so maybe it was that, but I feel like Die Hard had a huge impact. I was, I was, when I was a kid, I was, I was like a kid in the eighties. So yeah. I remember Die Hard coming out and being like, oh my God, what is going on? This is amazing. That is a great movie, by the way. Great Christmas movie, actually. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, out of out of the three of them, the original three, we'll say, what is your favorite? Is Die Hard the first one that your favorite? Or do you, I like Vengeance, personally, a little bit more. Oh, okay. 
I haven't seen Vengeance in a long time. I mean, the first one I and I actually rewatched the first one a few days ago, so mm-hmm. I'm I'm kind of partial to it. Okay, but um, you know, there was like there was just a bunch of like all the side characters in Die yeah. Hard are so good, like the the computer nerd who's cracking yeah. the locks and Argyle, the limo driver. Yeah. And the guy who's like, Hans, Booby, I'm your white knight. <laughs> and like, yes. um, the guy's so doing they, coke, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ellis, I think his name is. Yeah, yeah, yes, so it yes. Just, it has like all these, you know, Johnson and Johnson, the, the FBI guys. Like mm. all the little guys have these funny characterizations in addition to the action itself is really banging. So uh, that was, you know, I, I don't know how old I was. I was a kid when I saw that that just was like, Oh my God, yeah. a movie is like way better than I thought it could be. Yeah, definitely. And also you don't forget Reginald Val Johnson, if I'm mistaken, is in that oh, movie. Of course. And then also he's, yeah, in, he's yeah. in Ghostbusters as well. I think Ghostbusters was his first role and then Die Hard huh. was the next role he got. If I'm okay, a, I might be wrong okay. with the timeline, but uh, yeah, a little bit of film history there. I yeah. like that. So, um, and then you got family matters, which is another good show. Uh, a classic. Yeah. Yes. If, Yes, I, I'm watching that religiously right now on Hulu, by the way. So I'm on like season four. Uh, so wait, so you're in high school. So we're still with high school then. So in high school, mm-hmm. you start loving, you know, I guess, when did you see Pulp Fiction? Like around high school or before high school? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm in my early 40s. So okay. I was in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I think my English teacher showed me Apocalypse Now in 10th yeah. grade. That was a big one. Uh, and then Pulp Fiction came out my senior year. So, gotcha. um, so, you know, it's like I was the perfect age for that movie. Yeah, definitely. I was 17. Pulp Fiction came out, and uh, I was actually living abroad at the time. I was living in Spain. Oh, nice. So all that stuff like Royale cheese mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, it was like we were, we were like, we were just in France. It was, <laughs> that's what they really call it. Like we were like drinking beers yeah. at the movie theater. <laughs> Like all the things he references in the scene, like we were like doing that as teenagers. Yeah. And so it it was like, oh my God, I've never seen a movie like this. So and, it really um, spoke to you I mean, in that regard too. And that it, with that yeah, with that you yeah. know, Royale with cheese stuff too. Yeah, yeah. Just everything about it, it was just so different mm. from any movie I'd ever seen yeah. uh to that point and, and kind of still have seen in some ways. So I don't know, that one Especially, like, I, I actually bought a bad motherfucker wallet that, um, I'm on my third one. Like, I've, I bought one, and I lost it, and, you know, I've lost, like, two of them, or one wore out. Yeah. But I've just, that's just been my wallet ever since seeing that movie in high school. Awesome. So, and when you see in high school, you start, you start getting that itch, right? And mm-hmm. so, did you pick up a camera then? Did you start, like, you know, making kind of, you know, making, like, homemade films in, the, in that regard? Or start writing down stuff? Like, what were you doing when you yeah. a- after you got that itch? I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I made a couple of videos even back in junior high. Yeah, yeah. A bunch of us would, uh, you know, skateboard and snowboard mm-hmm. or whatever. And so, you just kind of make videos with your friends. Mm-hmm. So, I, I kind of had started a little bit, but not, you know... Yeah. Not to the degree of like writing down a story or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but at my college, they had film equipment and they had, a, you know, film classes. And so I basically took all those. And that was my first time actually, mm-hmm. you know, storyboarding yeah. and, and kind of setting up shots and stuff like that. What, what college did you go to? And did you originally uh, go for film or something I, else? I mean, they didn't. 
didn't have a true film major. It was Brown yeah. University. Okay. Uh, and and uh, so you had to take like two years of prerequisites. And then like the last two years, you could shoot film, like 16 millimeter film. So yeah. um, uh, technically, my major is called art semiotics, but um, which is half theory and half art production classes. But oh. all of the art classes I took were either film or music. So oh, cool. um, I was just, yeah. And, but, you know, that's like still, I'm very young, 18, yeah. 20. I don't know how old I was. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that's the first time I could actually try to do something on my own. Yeah. And what were those projects like, were you making at that time, getting able to run out that equipment and stuff like that? Like, what were you, um, making in that, at that moment? I mean, one was, you know, one of my roommates starred in two of my films in college, uh, and then, you know, classic, you know, cast my girlfriend and yeah. one of my films in college. Uh, one was about a, um, he was like a con man, like a magician yeah. and he would, uh, he could do car tricks, but he was also kind of a con man. Oh, nice. And so he was trying to sucker in this, this other guy. That was like the one that was probably the most developed. Um, and then my last year, I did this kind of sort of sci-fi project where, yeah everyone was trying to get this microchip from everyone. And I, I cast one of my professors played one of the roles and my mm -hmm. girlfriend played a role and the same guy who played the, the magician in the other film. And so everyone was trying to get this microchip that could connect to the network and do something. I don't know what, um, yeah. and, uh, before everyone else got it. And so, um, it was a kind of, it was about this one kind of dead eyed guy who managed to steal this thing. And he was trying to get rid of it before he got in trouble. Cool. Were you uh, were you shooting that on film or like around that time was like, you know, the three chip cameras, like mini TV stuff? Were you guys shooting in college or was it like pure film? It was pure film. I mean, my my last year in college, yeah. the school bought a Sony PD-1, which was one of the first deep mini DV cameras. Mm -hmm. So I was like the last class that still shot on film. I think the next year everyone started shooting on DV. Yeah. Um, and I actually went to film school after college. Oh, cool. And similar thing, it was like early mini DV Canon yeah. XL1 was coming out and stuff like that. So it was like a mix by the end of mm -hmm. like shooting some on 16 and some on, on DV. That's kind of funny because uh, in college I shot mini DV and then when I left, T2Is were like a big thing. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. So, so That's like, a great camera. It, it is. But at the same time, I was like, I just got like I just got to learn my GL two, and I was like really mm -hmm. like I was like damn it now I gotta get a DSLR or something like to <laughs> do, like you know have this HD quality because no one's gonna be wanting like some standard definition shit I'm like damn it so <laughs> so, so you went to, you said you went to film school after college what uh, what film school did you go to uh, it's called Howard University and it's, it's in DC okay um what what was the actually let me ask you this too because i i only been to dc once and that's a, as a child um cuz i'm from jersey originally but uh -huh. uh, what, what was the, what was the atmosphere in dc like like in your college years and your especially in the film school years like what was that community and like what was the atmosphere of filmmakers over there like uh so dc is an interesting town cuz uh obviously the government's there so there's yeah. a lot of news there mm -hmm. and then the discovery channel and national geographic are the mm -hmm. two big cable networks that yes. are there so Anyone kind of comes out of Howard if they start working, or at the time BET was also there, the, the cable network. Oh, so wow. 
people people would go for Discovery, BET, or National Geographic. Um, or there were some news jobs, but you know, if you want to go into film, maybe don't go into to news. Mm-hmm. So um, friends of mine were kind of freelancing a little bit, you know, whether it's shooting or getting hired to be like a you know electrician or grip yeah. at, on some of those type of jobs. But um, I didn't really actually ever do any network jobs when I was in DC. I mean, that, that was what was around, um, as far as independent film and like, you'd meet someone and they're like, Oh, I edit, you know, freelance discovery, but I'm, I'll work on your short on the side. Like it was a lot of people worked in TV. Um, and then as far as the students, like American university also had a film program. And so we never would meet other kids, but you just, um, maybe at a screening, it was, it felt very small, like community like there you'd ask two people for a recommendation mm-hmm. and like the third person on their list would always be the same. You know, it was like yeah. the community wasn't that big. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it's like six degrees of separation in a sense, right? If I'm, I'm, yeah. 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 And, but like two or three degrees. Yeah. But yeah. yeah three, three degrees off. <laughs> yeah, uh, max. Yeah. Uh, so uh, going back to college, when you get to film, the film school, sorry, the, um, you're in that, that school, what was, well, as I never went to a traditional film school, I went to an art school. Mm-hmm. So, what was the oh, cool. what was um, film film school like then? It, like, what were you? Because I read books like you know, one hundred and one things they don't teach you in film school. Was it like what they say, where you know you're not going to be a director because like so and so's dad paid like everyone off with you know the money to fund the school or whatever, and you're basically going to end up being a grip or like electrical or PA? Is it is that is that true, or is it not like that at all? I mean, it was no so much. It wasn't so much like that at my film school. I ended up when I moved to New York, which is where I live now. I met a lot of kids who went to NYU, Mm -hmm. which had more of a vibe like that. Like I met a a guy whose you know parents or somebody gave him ninety thousand dollars for his thesis film. You know, so like definitely that happens at you know some of the more expensive programs. I would say one of the coolest parts about Howard was that it's actually very affordable compared mm. to um, it was like you know a fifth the price of an NYU or something yeah. like that. So um, you know, by my second year, I was a TA, which I got like half my tuition reimbursed. Oh, nice! Um, and, you know, it was like it was I could almost like pay my way through mm. um, just kind of from freelancing. So it wasn't the same. Um, it, you know, it wasn't the same financial yeah. burden as like one of the bigger programs. I mean, the advantage of some of the bigger programs is just that if somebody does blow up, you know, it's like a great network of people to know. And, and, you know, I met someone from who was like AFI and he was just like, Oh yeah, my buddy from film school is, you know, signing deals at Tony and this person's a Fox and this person's Disney and, and yeah. I'm an agent and, and this guy's a director. And like, they're just, you know, like the AF, AFI mafia and they're like helping each other out kind of even within the industry. Yeah. So Howard doesn't have that type of reach into the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, there weren't, you know, there's uh, one student who's become very famous, Bradford Young. Um, oh, I love his some, work. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's amazing. So yeah. he was a year ahead of me. Oh, wow. Um, but there were, uh, there were, and we worked together, you know, yeah. um, uh, at that time, but there was like, it was just a very small group. Yeah. And so I have friends, including Bradford from that era that, you know, I'm still in touch with, but at the same time, it's not like we're like sitting on board of, you know, 
yeah. like green lighting picture, green lighting each other's movies every, yeah, you know, every five minutes. Yeah. And, and when you're also, you said you were doing freelance work as well. How do you like pick up those? Because you ask, well, because of your um, background doing that stuff in college, first before you went to film school, you got those jobs, I guess, because you had your buddies uh, through who you knew through Grip and Electrical, you were saying. Is that how you got those other, uh, those freelance gigs? Or were you freelancing? You no, know, well, what happened is um, one of the professors at Howard mm-hmm. uh, who ended up being a mentor to a lot of us, Haile Karima, um, had a kind of, he had an avid at his office, uh, yeah. which he owned this bookstore right off campus. And so a lot of people would kind of learn avid, just kind of helping Haile out with, yeah. you know, like basically interning for him, helping him out with projects. Um, and then he recommended me to a post-production house in DC where I got an internship and then they later hired me. Oh, nice. So I, I was working, you know, I learned Avid. I was, you know, my boss would rent out Avid. So yeah. we would uh, drive it out to some guy's house or, you know, some woman's house and assemble it and, you know, make sure it, uh, it worked. And then he had two Avids that were like in the facility that were always kind of rented out and different editors and different, you know, freelancers would come in. Yeah. And if it's a really, really small project, like with, you know, not a lot of budget, then sometimes he would let me edit or assist the editor. Uh, so that's how I kind of taught myself editing. Mm-hmm. And I was able to start to get freelance jobs as an editor. Gotcha. Even back when I was in film school. Nice. Now, uh, the Avid thing, let me ask you this. Like, it, like, it was. It's not like you were moving stuff to Avid. Like you were mobily moving an Avid, but it wasn't a computer back then. It was like just a computer and like also a big old mainframe or some shit, like with a tower and like a bunch of servers too, right? Now it's like just yeah. It was like it was like yeah. It was like a computer, but then it would have like yeah three. I feel like almost like three computers, you know, because yeah. it would have like these little boxes. It wasn't as huge as like a mainframe, like taking up a whole room. Yeah, but it would take up like the trunk of you know, my boss had like a Toyota four runner SUV. Yeah. So take up the trunk, you know, the two monitors, yeah. the computer, and then the outboard boxes and the, you know, the tape drives. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I, I guess what I learned from that, what I like about that experience yeah. is I could see how, at least in post-production, all the pieces fit together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you just kind of understood like, like he put me in an avid class and you just learned the entire software from the ground up in terms also in terms of like how it would connect to this outbound software. So, um, you know, now you don't have to do as much of that stuff. You can do more stuff Mm -hmm. inside of the computer, but you know, like BNC cables and this and RGB versus YUV and all these kind of really technical details. You understood how it was part of that ecosystem. So, um, even if it's outdated now, it kind of gave me a, a foundation in terms of like what here's what the technical aspect of filmmaking yeah. is, and um, and bigger post houses, that knowledge is still very much in play. But uh, but you know m- most of us I think now, or if you're freelancer, if you're a small production company, then you're just you know you have whatever computer you buy. I use Macs, yeah, and you can do almost everything in the, inside of the box. Yes, and. Um, did editing help you become a, a better director? Did it give you a, another like layer, like where you can, you know, just see things from a different perspective in the edit? Like, did it help you, you know? Absolutely. Learn? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I mean, uh, so way I I say about editing, there's there's two things about it. 
Mm. Um, and one will help you become a better director and one won't. So um, if you're an editor, what you start to do like is figure out how little footage or exactly what shots you need to be able to tell a story. Oh, we need a, a master of the, mm -hmm. you know, the exterior of the house. Then we see the wide shot of them at the dining room table, then the close up, and then the answer. Like you just know the shots. Yeah. And you don't necessarily need that high angle shot. Or you don't need the reverse. You don't need that up. You know, like you can, because you've worked on so many projects and, and built up so many different scenes when you're doing your own work, mm -hmm. you know exactly the types of shots and coverage that you need in order to move forward. Yeah. And you also know clever ways you can combine a shot and um, just, you know, like there's a, I shot a feature maybe five years ago and um, there's one scene that's really entertaining. People always laugh, but in my head, I'm like, that's just three shots, you know, yeah. you know, two takes a piece max, you know, but it was just three angles, but they were so different that the scene always has life and, and it's cut in this really interesting way and it was because i knew how i was going to cut it when i shot it mm -hmm. and i knew oh if i just get i'll be able to make a whole scene out of this thing yeah even on the day people were like are you sure we don't need more or well you know blah, blah. And I was, in my head i already had the whole thing yeah. um built so that that's how editing helped the the part um the other thing that happened what i was going to say is how editing doesn't help is there's a lot of portions of directing when you're on set that are about humanity like how you communicate to other people how you motivate people yeah. how you convince somebody to do something that either is emotional or that they feel safe being in a, doing an emotional scene around or if it's a stunt or yeah. what you know just if it's something embarrassing how do you commit somebody to you know like say you have someone needs them to walk out in the street in their underpants it's like mm. Some people are just going to on the day like are we sure you know we need to do that you know type of thing um or a crew member is, you know, has a bad attitude and they're, they're kind of bringing down morale of everybody, right? There's a lot of parts of being on set that are human and that are about how you relate to people. And, you know, sometimes they're bad things, like, like somebody spreading bad vibes, sometimes they're good things, it's just the laughs and enjoyment you have. Mm -hmm. And um, editing can't teach you any of that. Yeah. It can only teach you tactically what to do, but you still have to go out and shoot a bunch of films. Mm -hmm. Um, just to know like what to do on set. I'll give you one more example. Sorry yeah. to keep going on. No, it's fine. No, no. Um, yeah. Um, I was, I got hired to do this job mm. for a client and we had to shoot in kind of a really tough neighborhood in Brooklyn. Mm. And, and so, uh, we, we drove out and, and the crew was maybe three or four of us. Nobody had ever been to that neighborhood. Yeah. And we had a red camera with nice lenses. And the DP was kind of like, uh, you know, I don't know if I want to take my camera out yeah. and shoot, you know. And I was just kind of like, well, we definitely can't make the film from sitting inside of the car, right? Yeah. So that, like, just getting out and doing it yeah. and motivating other people to get out and do it is part of being a director. And that whatever putting your body on the line being physical being in the space talking to actors talking to crew members talking to somebody comes over from a store that you're shooting and says hey what are you doing out here and do you have a permit or whatever mm. like being able to interact and, and make it happen in real time um is the part that you only learn from going out and, and shooting a bunch of projects
would you say also like directing has to have like this kind of oh not mindset but like you have to have a weird like not weird too but like something about reverse psychology because you kind of like you said you have to convince people like you know get out of like hey you know we have to do this you know we have to let's let's go shoot it because we're not going to stay in the car and shoot it right right I mean I think I think um, you know it's reverse psychology I mean there's all different kind of techniques you Mm -hmm. just have to be a leader you know you just have to you just have to inspire people to want to do the project with you. Would that be, and, would that be uh, your definition of a director as well? Like a, a, just a leader, someone inspiring people? I mean, I think that's part of it. You know, uh, I mean, you have to have a vision, you yeah. know, artistically, like what, how it works, all this stuff. But I think part of, uh, you know, like how certain things happen is somebody takes a risk and they say, no, it'd be great if we just do this. You know, uh, yeah. I was watching a thing with Will Smith and he was talking about for bad boys, like the iconic shot with yeah. where his chest is kind of out and it's slow motion. Mm-hmm. You know, Michael Bay, the director was trying to convince him to take his shirt off. And Will Smith is like, no, why do I got to take my shirt off? You know, yeah. like, I think it's fine on, you know, it doesn't make sense for the scene. And then Bay, apparently this is on the LeBron James show, the shop. So I'm quoting yeah. the whole thing, but Michael Bay was like, you know, I'm going to make you a fucking movie star. You take <laughs> off your shirt. And like Will Smith compromised and he unbuttoned it halfway. Yeah. And so that iconic shot of him is like him doing half of what Michael Bay asked, but he's also a big star in his own right. And maybe he didn't want to, you know, and so, um, so we get this iconic shot, but if Michael Bay hadn't been like, can you take your shirt off? Then we wouldn't have that shot, you yeah. know? And this is the shot that kind of like made Will Smith famous. So, um, that, is that true. part that is like, like Michael Bay himself, like did something he didn't have to do. Right. He went yeah. out on a limb. He said, this is what we have to do to make this thing great. And he was right. And so some part of directing is that is like mm-hmm. going above and beyond. Um, but then some part of it is just figuring out in advance and like knowing mm-hmm. like in the example I gave before, like, Oh, if I just use these three shots, it'll be awesome. You know, some yeah. of it is, great planning and and uh just being tactical and some of it is like in the moment almost being like a quarterback like leading and, yeah. and just taking the temperature and, and pushing as far as you can go even i think as a director too you have to have like you have to be like batman too because batman has contingency plans for everything and like if mm-hmm. something goes wrong you have to have your plan a through z basically in your head right of how to do that right I, another example of my own absolutely i mean i i mean my thing about production is that something always will go wrong. Yeah. You don't know what will go wrong, but you know that something will go wrong. It's, and so, it's the common, it's the common uh, quote from everyone. Something will go wrong yeah. in production. And even if you plan it out, something will still go wrong to a T. Yeah. So, but, yeah. So you, I mean, so having a good plan helps you improvise. Yeah. You know what you need to get done. And yeah, definitely. like, um, I'll give you an example yeah. of that. Um, so I did this short film a few years ago. It's like, it's like 10 years ago. Uh, their eyes were watching gummy bears. We got this really awesome location, partially inspired by Michael Bay. We were shooting. What, what movie is this, by the, the way? What, if I may ask. Uh, my short is called Their Eyes Were Watching Gummy Bears. Okay. And uh, But Michael Bay shot part of Transformers 2 on the campus of Princeton University. Oh, okay. And uh, we had access to shoot at Princeton University. One of my producers mm-hmm. went there and got us a bunch of locations at Princeton. And so we were shooting this kind of frat party. Yeah. 
in a very similar frat party location to the Transformer 2 um, scene. So yes. we were like going for this really big look and all this stuff. And it was a big overnight shoot. It was the last day. We had been shooting for five days. And so we were shooting all our night scenes that last night. And basically, we had to wrap at 5 a.m. when the sun came out because uh, the sun would be coming through the window and it just wouldn't look, we'd lose the look basically. So we had like a very limited amount of time and, um, and it was a big crew we had as a party. So we had 20 extras, 20 people on the crew. It was one of the biggest crew, you know, crews and scenes I'd ever shot. Yeah. Uh, steady cam, like, you know, like big. The whole night. And, uh, yeah. So we, we, we get on set like at 6 30. It's still light outside. We're setting up the house. My producer runs into the, the location. There's a puddle of water. She slips and she falls. She's unconscious. Oh my gosh. Like, like, I don't know. That's something you're saying. Something always goes wrong. This is like the beginning of the shoot and we're already sending somebody to the hospital. Um, and so it was, it was just like, you know, uh, I mean, we, she was safe. Like we were like, I was just there, you know, when when she kind of came to and it was like, are you okay? Yes. Yes. We're calling somebody, somebody to call an ambulance. Um, and it was, and that was just, you know, the first 20 minutes of the day. Yeah. Um, and, and so we're like shooting, shooting, uh, it's like 1am and one of the other producers comes up to me and it's just like, look, um, we're not going to make it, you know, uh, it's probably earlier than that. They yeah. probably 10, 30, 11, you know, they're like, we're not going to make it. Wow. So pessimistic. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're, you're going to need to cut an entire scene you're going to have to figure out what you can cut from yeah. your shot list because we won't make it by five. Um, and so you're going to have to figure out that the best would be to cut this entire scene and figure it out later. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so I'm like, you know, shit, like me and my DP, like yeah. just go sit. It's like cruise on lunch. We just sit and talk for a second. And, um, you know, we like move a bunch of lights and the gaffer, like, just do some stuff to help get set up. And then we walk back in and I'm like, Oh, you know what? We have all these extras here. And we luckily that day had a set photographer Yeah, and he had a five D. And so we were shooting the film on a red, but Mm -hmm. I just, I went to the set photographer and I was like, you know, I did almost like a little cross number in front of his his head. I was like, you're now the second unit DP. (laughs) Take all the extras, go in that room over there and make a party scene, make everybody party and have fun. And we'll just stand in the principal cast and between takes from this other scene so they can appear in the party. And that's what you're going to do for the next hour. And so that enabled us to like split the crew. The main crew was just still lighting and building the the next set that we had to shoot. Meanwhile, these guys are making the party and I would, I would like pop in for five minutes and be like, yo, go, go, go. And then we'd shoot it. And it totally made it. It's in the movie and it was awesome. And, um, and right when I called cut, it was like our very last take, like, you know, 5 a.m. Yeah. I was like, cut, you know, and then DP was just like, yo, the sun just peeked over. We're done. And I was like, wow, thank you. We just printed, you know, that was, that was the one. Holy um, were you nervous at all too? Cause like the 5d and the red are totally different. Like, you know, beast in, in their respective sense but like you know just like the the log profile i think even like you know shooting flat on a 5d and shooting that in, with a red I, the, the color right. correction yeah. must have been a pain in the ass 
Or even like I the mean, way the guy it, shot too, like it's not going to be the same as your DP yeah. unless like your DP, I don't know if your DP and him, you know, cla- like, talked no. it out real and quick. And my DP was so mad that I used that footage in the film. You know, he was just yeah. like, what is this when he first saw it? Um, but he understood. I mean, he, yeah. you know, basically uh, that was the only way to make the movie. Yeah. That was the only way to make our day. Yeah. And, um, and so it like, luckily the scene that we were shooting on the 5D had license to look crazy because it was it's supposed to be people are drunk and yeah, doing yeah. jello shots and woo woo so it could look like like crazy. Gotcha. Uh, and so that's how we shot it. Uh that's not our vision. Like we would have totally had we been on schedule, chosen to shoot it differently. Mm-hmm. But um but I just think in production it was like, well I knew what we could do and what we couldn't do. Yeah. And so with our main team it was more important to get this other scene and improvise on this mm-hmm. the one little thing. And, and that's like, you get that sense like of what, what you can ask of a crew, how fast you can move. But yeah. also if I got to skip something, here's how I'm going to, I'm going to cheat on this little part of the test just so I can like hit these big questions at the end, you know? And yeah. so, um, like that part of it, I actually really enjoy, I don't like it when things go wrong, of course, Yeah, but I do love solving problems, you yeah. know, right, right in the field. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I love doing that too. It's fun. It's, it's an, it's an adrenaline, it's an adrenaline rush. Yeah. 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 It's, it's so fun. It's, it's as bad as that sounds. It's, it's just like, like again, yeah, maybe to someone it sounds bad, but to me, it doesn't sound bad. It's just like that rush of adrenaline and it makes like you said, problem solving. It makes you think on your toes and improvise. Which filmmaking yeah. is also improvis- yeah. improvisation. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, like a like an emergency room. Yeah, you know, like you don't know when somebody's going to come in, how yeah. much they're going to be bleeding, what's going to be wrong with them. But you're a doctor and you know how to fix a body, and so like part of like filmmaking is like that. It's like, yeah, I don't know what the problem is going to be, but I have enough knowledge of all the different parts of this that I can make it whole again by the end of the day. It's just there's going to be some place where we're making a little adjustment. And I mean, as you get bigger and bigger, maybe some of those problems go away. Maybe you're shooting in more controlled environments. Maybe people's contracts are bigger, all that kind of stuff. But you know, if you watch like a, I don't know if you've ever seen Apocalypse Now or if you've ever seen the documentary about the making of Apocalypse Now. You know, um, I think I've seen uh, parts of Apocalypse. I, I think I own Apocalypse Now. And I can't. Why am I like blanking out if I saw it or not? Like I've, I have a shit ton of movies and I shouldn't. I should know if I watched it or not. You know what? I'm gonna. You should check it out. I will have yeah, to check it, it out again. It, yeah. It's. It's. I mean, Francis Ford Coppola, first of all, in the seventies. Yeah. Had about as good of a decade. Oh yeah, you can ever have. Did you ever? He did Godfather one and yep. two, the conversation and Apocalypse Now all within ten years. And did he write Great um, Gatsby also in that time frame too? If I'm not mistaken, he might have. He might have. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, uh, yeah. Go ahead. I was gonna say because I don't know if you uh, ever listened to the Rewatchables podcast. They like over old movies. I, and- I haven't. Uh, I've listened to a couple episodes. I haven't listened to the one on the Gatsby. Yeah, they well um, they, they talk about uh, Godfather two and they talk about like the 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 clout like Francis Ford Coppola had to like uh-huh. do the second one. And he's like, I want to do the great Gatsby. I want to like direct an opera or something like that. And like, he <laughs> to do all this stuff to do the Godfather part two. So, right. And also, I don't yeah. know if you knew about this, but, um, there's a book called, I think the Godfather handbook or notebook. I have it. I'm, okay. I'm not in my bedroom, like in the, in the room where I can go look at my books real quick. Cause I'm on the, I'm on the mic with you, but it's basically all the notes uh, Ford Coppola took 
of when like reading the book and like the printed pages of the book on there with his oh, notes cool. and stuff. It's really cool. It's really something like yeah. It's an awesome coffee table book. I don't have a coffee table to put it on, so it's <laughs> just you know collecting dust at the moment. But it's a really fascinating book. Highly recommend. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because I mean, yeah. I mean, well, you know, the two scenes. I mean, yeah. Basically, in 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 um, Apocalypse Now, like they have the entire Cambodian army, like all of their choppers are like part of the production. Yeah, so oh, all, you yeah. know, you start yes. you start out and you're like, oh, I'm just gonna make a movie. Oh, we need a helicopter. Oh shit, we're working with the national army. Oh yeah. my god, like there's strong men. <laughs> like it just got so huge the yeah. production. I mean, he lost a hundred pounds while he was making the movie. And wasn't um, like the most but, footage ever shot too at one time? Until like I, I wouldn't be Gate. surprised. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but also in Godfather Part Two, like the Ellis Island scene. I mean, yeah. the scale of that thing, yeah. you know, all of those extras and the San Gennaro, mm-hmm. like all of those extras that they had in Godfather Part Two. It's just like if you're not freaking out, if something's not going wrong, yeah. while you're doing something that big, then then there's something wrong with. You. Like, <laughs> so it's okay if something goes wrong on our little productions. We're, we're mm-hmm. trying to do is have things buttoned up enough so that you can do it bigger and bigger and bigger because yeah. at some point it's going to get so huge that almost nobody could really not freak out yeah. while doing it well by that time you have like a you know a second ace a second ad then a second second ad and like a third ad yeah, and yeah. A fourth one yeah. you know and then it turns into a key pa <laughs> it's like it's yeah yeah so, so um go go back to college a little bit too uh film school i mean sorry um after you finished that program, uh, did you move to Brooklyn right away or did you like stay in the DC area? Um, I stayed for like a year, but okay. I, I pretty, pretty much moved. I mean, Bradford had moved to Brooklyn, like a bunch of people from Howard were just mm-hmm. kind of moving like one by one. And, uh, so I eventually did move to New York. Um, and part of that was just, you know, the scene in DC was very small, like yeah. I said. And, uh, and I just, you know, every time you go out in DC, like you'd be at somebody's house, you yeah. know, and uh, they'd be like, "What do you do?" And I was like, "Oh, I work in film." They're like, "Why are you in DC?" Like, every <laughs> single time, you know. And yeah, yeah. Like, man, I gotta get out of here. Yeah. Um. So I eventually did leave. Mm. What made you choose Brooklyn over the Bronx or like Queens or you know Manhattan in that in that regard? But I mean, I I know when I was like uh, living in Jersey and like around when I was in college, I know Brooklyn was coming back up and like you know mm-hmm. becoming a hot spot again, but uh. I mean, I, I guess what time, what year did you move to Brooklyn? Because like, I, I mean, was it becoming a hot spot at it that was, time? It was, it was like it was getting there. I mean, mm-hmm. it wasn't as hot as it is now. Two thousand five. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so it was. I mean, part of it was just that's where my friends were. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But it also over Manhattan, it was it was more affordable. You yeah. Know? So um, it was just uh, you know decent, mm. you know, price. And then like now the prices are crazy in Brooklyn. But um, uh, it, it was like more or less affordable, and then I just happened to know a bunch of people in New York. Yeah. Some people from college, some people from front film school were there. Mm-hmm. Whereas I only knew like one or two people in LA. So yeah. to move, both my parents are on the East Coast. The thing about moving to the West Coast was like would have been like a much bigger leap. Yeah. Whereas I knew a bunch of people in New York, so mm-hmm. that was the choice. And when you get to New York, you start, you know, because you have the connections with people that you know from film school. You're, I guess you're going to be getting jobs right away, if, if I may um, just guesstimate correctly. I mean, it was, it was, it's, it's always a struggle. There's always moments where, yeah. 
you know, you're like, damn, you know, someone's going to hire me. And, uh, definitely like when I first got to New York, that was, I was like super nervous. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was what it was that really helped me move. Actually, when I was my last year in DC, I started doing a lot of freelance editing for this advertising agency and they really liked me and they were in Baltimore, which is an hour North of DC. Mm -hmm. Um, but a lot of their freelancers would come from DC and they were like, they just, we're tired of hiring different freelancers, I guess, and, and yeah. not having people who were dependable. Like one person would be good, then the next person would suck or whatever. And they really liked me. So they just said, hey, uh, can we just put you on retainer and we'll pay you like not a lot of money, like 1500 bucks a month. Oh, wow. But um, for four days of work, uh, so 1600 I can't remember. It was like. We'll yeah. pay you like a little money. Like we'll give you four days of work per month. And yeah. that way you can move to New York. They knew I kind of wanted to move to New York. They're like, mm-hmm. that way you can move to New York and we'll, we just want access to you because we don't want to have to keep, you know, rolling the dice yeah. every time we get a freelancer in here. So they, they kind of gave me this, is a perfect setup because it's enough money to pay rent in New yeah. York. But also I could work for continue working for them and know that I had like a little financial security. Yeah. It only lasted for six months, that deal. Mm -hmm. But that was what enabled me to move was, okay, I can move and know that I have a little bit of income while I, you know, try and find other stuff. So it it was uh, super helpful. And like you said, six months is six months longer than, you know, a month. So that's a a ton of, ton of pluses. Um, what was yeah. gonna, I was going to ask, uh, during that time too, cause that's 2005 Dropbox isn't like, you know, big or anything of that nature mm-hmm. in file sharing. So like, were they sending you hard mm-hmm. drives back and forth? Yeah. I was bringing hard drives back and forth, yeah. uh, and still tapes. I mean, oh man, you no, know, um, yeah. mini TV. So, um, but yeah, uh, but I would, I would come down, like I'd either catch a bus or a Amtrak and like just work from their office for the three or four days. So uh, I would do everything on site and then I go back to New York and, and, and mm-hmm. so I didn't have to do that much transport, like maybe once or twice. I oh, okay. Not too bad then. Um, yeah. So yeah. then when, when you're in the back, uh, back to New York and you're doing that, you're also like, you know, doing your thing. Um, did mm-hmm. you start writing um, movies? Did you start writing, you know, did you start directing stuff what were you directing uh i know you uh, was that film that you were telling me about the one that you did in princeton the was that like one of the first big projects you did yeah i mean that happened a few years later but yeah Mm. i mean i think you know i was i um you know that same ad agency that um you would hire me to edit like you know i had shown them my thesis film from film school Mm. i was like hey you know i want to direct you know i know you guys do commercials and they were like, yeah, haha, you know, like they were, mm-hmm. you know, and I would see the reels of the directors uh, that they had, yeah. you know, directing their actual commercials. Like they had this little library full of DVDs. And I imagine you walk in somebody's pantry or like a walk-in closet. I mean, it's like a room wall to wall with DVDs, you know, yeah. of directors who are better than me, you know what I mean? Yeah, or yeah. more established than me. So um, it was kind of like, I was like, yeah, you want to direct stuff? And then they walk you into this room. It's like, oh, wow. Yeah. You know, there's, you know, Spike Jones is real and there's, you know, whoever's real. Um, And so it was just, and every ad agency at the time would have this. Now it's more online, but I went to a few ads and they just have a library and it's literally hundreds of directors. And so, you know, like I, when I first got to New York, 
I met this guy. I can't remember how I met him. Alumni in my school or something. Someone set me up with this med, uh, this producer at an ad agency who did, they had huge stuff like Bacardi rum and Visa, oh, wow. you know, like and, you know, like big national yeah, commercials. Yeah. And I had like my one little, two little spec commercials that I did in film school. And he watched it and he was nice. He's like, oh, this is you know, mm. good, good stuff, you know. But he wasn't like, I'm gonna hire you next week, you know. And then yeah. he just like, he literally like walked me to the room with the DVDs, pulled like a couple things off the shelf and then played it and it was just like 10 times better yeah. than anything I'd ever done. Um, and he was, he, he was nice, but he was just basically saying like, Hey, you know, like keep working, you yeah. know, keep trying, like keep getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the level that you have to get to if you want the type of work that I, I can hire people yeah. for. Uh, so it was, to me, it was like a, a nice, he wasn't an asshole or anything like that, but it was just like, you know, he respected my hustle and my grind, but he was also like, you need to come up a couple levels like, yeah. in order to get this type of work. So early on in New York, that's kind of what I was doing. Anything I could do, music videos, um, small stuff, small brands, yeah. you know, um, like I had this one really cool project two years after I got to New York and Sony was doing like, it's like, YouTube had just launched and everybody was yeah. trying to get online. And Sony did something where they were like, it was like almost their channel. And we got to do like many docs of 20 bands in New York. And oh, so that's for cool. like, yeah, like a month and a half, I was just, you know, going to a lot of shows. You'd shoot the show and then you interview yeah. the band backstage. And there's like small clubs, like not, you know, yeah. like Madison Square Garden, but like, um, but this small, but that was like a really cool project of just I'm interviewing people, mm-hmm. which has become a skill now that I've, I've done a lot of mini doc pieces. So I'm, I'm skilled at interviewing. Yeah. But that was like the first time when I really gotten paid to do it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then also on the editing front, it's like, okay, you got to tell a story in four minutes. Go, yeah. you know, and here's the B roll and, and here are the different. Um, so it just taught you to think kind of like, almost guerrilla filmmaking. Yeah. Like every situation is going to be different. Half the time, the DPs were different. You know, Bradford mm-hmm. shot a couple of those pieces with us, but then, you know, he couldn't do it. And then he recommended his friend, Daniel Patterson, who's mm-hmm. become a big DP now. So Dan shot a couple of pieces with us. And, uh, you know, yeah. uh, just, it was just like, you know, like just running around basically yeah, shooting yeah. a lot of stuff. And it was a, a really fun project. So that was like, but in doing a lot of, kind of doc work or work for hire yeah it was always like yeah well you know this is cool but you know my dream is actually to make movies yeah and so nobody's going to make it for you basically was like after a couple years of being in new york i realized like oh if you want to make a movie like it's not enough to say that you want to make movies like you have to either write your own projects Mm -hmm. or find a script or uh you know put yourself in a situation where you're doing narrative work and so i think i wrote a script i don't i it was probably next year after that but i i had this one job that i kind of unexpectedly got more money than i thought i was going to get it and um and so i was like oh i'm rich you know Um, (laughs) surprise it's christmas (laughs) (laughs) and so i uh i just got on craigslist and i rented an apartment in new orleans i'd never been in new orleans before and i found a guy who was renting out of stuff for six weeks and i just you know, his apartment in New Orleans had like, 
you know, a porch and a backyard and yeah. washer dryer wow. and a kitchen. And it was like for the same cost as my tiny little room in Brooklyn. I was like, Oh my God, I'm doing a it all wrong. And an apartment. <laughs> like, wow. And a- it was like half of a house, a living room, a dining room, kitchen. I was like, what is going on? Um, but I, you're I selling me on new Orleans, down- by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it was awesome. And I went, I went there for a summer basically yeah. for eight weeks. And uh, I wrote a screenplay while I was there because I, I mean, I had this extra money. So I was yeah. like, oh, I'll, I'll go on a trip and I'll, I'll write. And yeah. um, that time, it was a project I had been talking about for years. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, would it be cool if we did this? And I was always pitching this idea. And, and one of my friends, it was that spring, was like, well, why don't you just write it? I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, yeah. I got to fucking write the idea. Like, duh. Like, write it down and then you can pitch. It's much easier to pitch an actual script then. To just keep having these same conversations. Mm. So that was like the first uh, time where I just was like, all right, I'm going to go pitch. I'm going to go write something yeah. and make something that I can potentially make years later, which I haven't made that film yet. But um, but that got me back into the flow of like generating my own scripts and, mm. and kind of doing narrative projects because um, the work is going to come and go. Yeah. But like whether or not you're making new narrative pieces um, it's kind of your own decision. Yeah. Uh, when you, when you wrote down new Orleans, like did, like did it, what was the atmosphere like there? Because in that regard, you're away from your own, um, I guess all the stuff that's around you that you know of in New York and in Brooklyn. Right. So you're mm-hmm. kind of away from that and you're kind of in your own environment and I'm getting, it's like, a less distractions in that regard. Was there yeah. less distractions yeah. in New Orleans? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, New Orleans has its own distractions because, yeah. you know, it's a vacation spot, you know, it's a yeah. party town, but at the same time, it was nice to not, you know, like sometimes in New York, even, like you're like oh i'm, I'm totally gonna write today and then your yeah. friend texts you it's like hey you want to get a drink tonight and you're like yeah you know what i mean and, <laughs> yeah. and so having the discipline to just say i'm you know yeah today's the you know just blocking off the time like i'm writing yeah. three hours a day or whatever did the, uh, it was much easier to, to, to do in a place where i didn't know anybody well also did like you know going out like if you i don't know if you went on walks around new orleans and stuff like that just like you know random like sightseeing in that regard did that like inspire you too while writing instead like you know that absolutely yeah, yeah yeah so that's what yeah. yeah new new input i mean i've done a thing a few times um where i'll just like rent a car for a weekend and like just drive till like a motel, like yeah. just on the side of the road, like, a, you know, 45, like a terrible motel and just like 50 bucks a night, yeah. you know, well, don't do that here in Vegas. all weekend. Yeah. <laughs> like, and just write all weekend. And yeah, it's yeah. like a solo kind of writing retreat or, uh, I have two friends and we've done it twice now where we'll get an Airbnb somewhere, mm-hmm. usually out in the desert. And, uh, and we just go and, you know, each have our own bedroom and we'll mm. just kind of like write all morning and then make a big lunch together, talk yeah. a little bit and then go back and write in the afternoon. Oh, nice. Um, so I've done that with those friends. I've done my own kind of solo writing retreats. New Orleans one was a big one cause that was several weeks. Yeah. Um, but sometimes, you know, you're not always going to have the money or the time to do that. Yeah, yeah. If it, if it's in your, where you live, like I have a friend who, um, has two kids yeah. and he would just wake up at 5 a.m. before anybody would any write for two hours before his family woke up. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wrote a book that was on like New York Times top 10 list. You know, oh, wow. Just 
doing that two hours a day before his kids woke up. So you don't have to travel to, to do it. You just mm-hmm. have to make the time. You know, yeah. making the time is way more important than like where you make it happen. But definitely. Um, yeah. But I think for you too, for you, it kind of re-sparked the energy to you to make the narrative films. So it's kind of special yeah. for you doing that for the first time in that regard. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I just, you know, cause you're kind of, I think one of the things with film school, luckily like Howard doesn't, doesn't have like a big name. So nobody really yeah. cares. Like you're like, I went to Howard. Everyone's like, whatever. Yeah. But like what I've seen with people who went to like, the famous film schools, they're like, I went to X school. Yeah. As if that means anything. Like, as if, like, I'm supposed to, like, bow down because of some degree, right? Like, yeah. nobody actually cares in the industry, like, what you, what school you went to, they yeah. care, like, what you can do for them. Just, and so just I've saying, seen people. J- just saying, yeah. sorry to cut you off, but just saying, my USC friends would disagree with you on that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, the, uh, you know, the people at the, you know, USC, UCLA. Yeah. AFI, NYU have that attitude sometimes that I think is, it's a very privileged kind of attitude. Well, you know, um, I'm at this school, so that means something. And it's like, I think that attitude can hurt people just as much as it can help you. Like if you, if it means that you're not willing to do work or put yourself in a position to be seen or get noticed or whatever, Mm -hmm. then it's actually kind of like weighing you down that degree. Whereas some people, it opens a lot of doors, and that's the point of it is that it should open doors, and and um, you know hopefully people take it with a positive. But you know some people, I feel like are also weighed down by their degree, and yeah. um, so it, it, you know it's just it's and then some people it's like you know half the famous film filmmakers didn't go to school at all. Yeah, like uh, half, you know went to some, yeah. Larry Shearer, right from the Joker DP, went for finance or economics. I think I heard him in an interview say. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, now there, there's so much training you can do online now. Yeah. You know, with YouTube and mm-hmm. um, there's so much you can learn online yeah. that it's less and less necessary. But you know, the access to people, the networks, that is like to me the biggest value of a film school. So yeah. that shouldn't be discounted. Um, and you also friends like people that you can call, like people I know from film school. Mm-hmm. Even I mean, you, I think you saw my review of my uh marvel lf yes i did it's like yes, I, did. I, I was hanging out with people i went to film school with yeah. you know how i'm running 15 years later we we're still talking still hang out and um some of those relationships just end up being valuable even just on a human being level yeah. let alone professionally so um you know i i i'm like kind of both and on the film school thing i, I feel like i've taught myself a lot of skills mm-hmm. just you know after effects stuff like that just from watching youtube but then also i have these lifelong friends that i made from being all being at the same place at the same time so uh you know it, it, both things it can it can be valuable yeah. but um it doesn't have to be everything i i agree with you there because like i i mean in school i felt like it was all theory and no practice a lot of times even though we did pro- projects it wasn't like mm-hmm. it didn't feel like it was like a project where I'm learning real world, um, you know, real world material in that regard, like going on a set for the first time, I was like blown away. I was like, Oh shit, this is what we do. This is what I, I can't talk to. <laughs> like I, like I was a grip, so I didn't know that I can't help camera department. You know what I mean? Like my first time, right, I was like, Hey, right. don't, don't, you don't, you stay in your lane. I'm like, Oh, okay. Di- sorry. Like I apologize and everything. I felt really bad. I was like, don't worry about it. So like, 
you, I felt I learned a lot just being on an actual set and then yeah. like, learning those experiences. I like to bring them now to like the indie films I'm doing out here when I, you know, when I go on set with people, like, you know, I'm like, people don't understand and people don't know. It's kind of weird. And like, yeah, it's a whole, that's a whole nother ball of wax. I'll get to later. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh, going back to you in, you know, you, you're doing all this stuff you wrote. Uh, you didn't, you said you didn't film that movie yet. You want to? I haven't filmed that one yet. Yeah, I do. Yes, yes. Uh, um, but that, you know, the yeah. problem with that movie, I got a lot of, like, I won, like, a $10,000 competition mm-hmm. with that script, and, like, all this good stuff happened. Yeah. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, that movie has a big purple dragon climbing out of the Hudson River, and uh, I just couldn't secure the kind of budget yeah. as a, someone who made zero features yeah. uh, to make that movie. So that's kind of, like, I feel like I still got to make at least one more movie before I could secure a kind of budget to to do that movie. Well, sign me uh, up for that one because I want to see this purple dragon come out of the Hudson River. But yeah, but you know, I mean, I I now it's like I've written three more scripts mm-hmm. since then, and I'm working on another. So it's kind of uh, a reconnected me with like how much the writing is yeah. a part of my career and my development as an artist. And then also it's cool to like write something that you could actually make like yeah. tomorrow as opposed to writing something that's, like, Oh, I got to do three movies and get famous before I can direct it. What, so, um, this might sound like a, so, uh, an easy question for you too, or like, a just uh-huh. a, a lo- I guess a loaded question too, maybe, but is it easier to d- direct your own movie or like if someone gave you a script, like what do you like better directing your own movie or directing someone else's movie and making your own vision from it? That might, I mean, that might be an uh, obvious answer. Yeah. No, I mean, I, you know, the short I was talking about, Gummy Bears, yeah. that we, their eyes are watching over that I didn't write. Yeah. And uh, that was really fun to direct something that I didn't write mm-hmm. because you have a little more freedom. You yeah. know, you're not like, oh, he has to say the line exactly like this because that's what I was thinking when I wrote. Mm-hmm. Like, you just, if the actor says it well, then you go with it. And um, it's kind of very liberating to work from material that you didn't write yourself. Yeah. Um, and it, it, because on set, you just have to be a director. You just have to understand how it's going to work as a story, but you don't, you shouldn't be writing on set. So mm-hmm. um, I I really enjoy, that was a project and, and working with clients and advertising, you work a lot of times from material that's mm-hmm. provided. Um, so I enjoy that. I also mm-hmm. enjoy writing my own. I would say like, if you're like starting at zero and you're like, all right, I want to direct a movie. Yeah it's much more likely that you're going to direct something that you wrote than some, someone just saw your vision and said, you know what, I'm going to hire you to direct. Yeah. Right. Because, um, like why, if somebody wrote something like they probably want to direct it themselves or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so it's, it's just, uh, someone said it it's maybe on a podcast or on Twitter or something. Somebody was just like, yeah, you better get started writing your own stuff. Cause that's the fastest route to making it and I was yeah like, oh yeah duh. so i've i've like taken that on whereas before when i first started i was like i'm going to be a super stylish director and just be a director for hire and yeah not really worry about the writing part but i just started writing because i was like well i can't sit around waiting yeah forever if nobody's giving me the project so um and i loved movies my whole life anyway it's yeah. not like you know um so i've just kind of built it into part of my thinking about how to do stuff Gotcha. Now, uh, after the the short with Gummy Bear, um, did you do seventy two hours of Brooklyn Love Story, or was that uh, was that or was it something else before that movie? 
Um, so after Gummy Bears, um, I spent two years on a feature that didn't get made. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote I wrote two scripts. I wrote one yeah. script and then I wrote the, the prequel. And so one of the actors from Gummy Bears, I cast in this project called How to Steal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I made a, I basically wrote a prequel to it. I was like, well, the How to Steal has a you know big bank robbery, something that was kind of like a little budget wise out of my yeah. league. But uh, the prequel was like all set on the subway. So I just, I, I took the same actors and I said, Hey, will you guys work with me for mm-hmm. a couple of weeks and we can shoot a teaser and shoot a bunch of stuff. And so we ended up shooting that and the prequel was like 60 pages. We shot like 50 of those pages. So it was almost like this feature that I, ne- that I made, but never finished yeah. uh, that, that I shot around that time. But I, what I did make was a short, a 10 minute short uh, and the teaser for how to steal which then got me a producer and the producer uh, basically optioned it for me. I worked with him for a year and a half, uh, but we hadn't raised any money to do the movie. So it was like, I basically spent like two and a half, almost three years working on this other project that didn't quite get off the ground. Um, But at the same time I got, you know, an awesome short out of it, the the teaser Mm -hmm. uh, and just more experience working with actors, experience writing for an actor and, Mm -hmm. and, you know rehearsing we did a lot of work so yeah. it's, it's kind of like i don't view it as much of a negative as it could be although of course you'd rather have the finished film yeah. um but while that was happening i basically got an offer to work on 72 hours which became my feature yeah uh and they, someone said hey we really it was the same producer who had worked on and who had written gummy bears um recommended me for this other project and said um they're looking this nonprofit in brooklyn which teaches filmmaking to teenagers as kind of like an after-school program mm. one of their short films that a student made we think would make a great movie a great fictional film we're looking for a writer director to look at the short doc it was like a seven minute doc and fictionalize it you know write it as a feature and yeah. direct it and so they interviewed me, uh, and I kind of came around. I had a relationship with that program. It's called Real Works, mm-hmm. and um, they chose me. And so then I spent whatever it was a spring or something, and I wrote a screenplay that we actually went out and shot that fall. So yeah. it was really cool. After you know two and a half years of kind of working on something, trying to piece it together, and doing stuff on my own with the actors, and then this producer that didn't totally work. Uh, someone came to me and said, Hey, we're going to, we want to do a movie like this year. We want you to do it. Let's go. And, um, and that ended up becoming that feature 72 hours. I have a question for you about 72 hours. There's a shot in there. Cause I, I watched the interview where you're talking about like the New York movies and this has like that New York vibe that like New York style of filmmaking. I really love, like, it's just, there's something about film, like New York filmmaking that I can't really explain to people. But there's a shot at the end of the trailer where it's them on the bench, right? And mm-hmm. like, is that like a slight homage to Gordon Willis with Manhattan a little bit? Because I'm like, I've oh, been... absolutely. All right, I yeah, want, it's, it's not, sure. yeah, it's, it's, yeah, because uh, uh, you know, I mean, that's Manhattan and this yeah. is Brooklyn, and so yeah. um, at the end of Manhattan, they're looking at the 59th Street Bridge. Mm-hmm. At the end of my film, we're looking at the Brooklyn Bridge yeah. uh, from the Brooklyn side going to Manhattan. So. Um, it's, it is a kind of slight homage to that or straight up homage. Um, 
and but also with a, a Brooklyn twist with it, you know, with, yeah, yeah. with our own twist to it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I I watched the trailer and I was like, this this is dope. I'm like, where I mean, I have to ask you like, where can I find it? Because I want to see this movie now. Uh, awesome. It's it's uh, if you have cable, it's airing on Stars right now. Okay. Um, so uh, that's probably the easiest. If mm. if you have Stars, if not. Uh, it's on Amazon. Okay. I think it's on iTunes, and it might even be on YouTube. Like movies, like you can buy it on YouTube, uh, iTunes, or Amazon. Uh, and sorry. All right, let me just found it. All right, cool. I'm gonna totally like check it out today, or actually this weekend, because my girlfriend yeah. and me are gonna watch it then. I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit okay. Her down. Okay. Awesome. So perfect. I'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, I'll let you know what I think. Um, yeah, man. I, I, like I said, like, there's something different about like. Because watching your interview, you're talking about all the New York filmmakers and like you know New York movies, and there there's that vibe of New York. There's that like the lighting, the everything is just so New York, and so I guess I mean maybe it's just an East Coast thing too, like the way films are made on the East Coast, or like there's just how they're how they're crafted on the East Coast. I feel like it's a different vibe than if you have like a LA filmmaker or a, a, someone here in Vegas filmmakers. You know, like I mean, I think I. I yeah, I think something about like the city itself, how mm. frenetic it is, how crushed in it is, yeah. you know, um, like guerrilla filmmaking, like you make it happen on the street a lot of times, you know, yeah. like you'll just, you just like, you'll like be there. Say you have a permit, like you're doing things officially, but sometimes yeah. you're like, Hey, can you be in this shot? Boom. Like, let's yeah. go. And like, you're just kind of making it happen. Um, some part of it is like that, like a catch as catch can type of feel. And, uh, I think that's part of what makes living in New York so dynamic is that stuff is popping up all the time and, and you're just kind of witnessing it. And so mm-hmm. I think a lot of filmmakers try to capture that some of that same energy or visually on screen capture it, you know, actually with the camera, but yeah. you're, you're trying to find a way to be a part of the environment as a normal person and also make a movie at the same time. So I think that's, that's probably why it comes across. Yeah. Never really thought of it that way, but you you put, you put it so nicely. Uh, um, but yeah, but I mean, it's you know, I, I'm sure. Like, I feel like L.A. You know, that's where movies are made, and more of them yeah. are made. So there's a, a you know, there's a house style, you know, yeah. the Hollywood style. Yeah, definitely. And you know, West Coast cities like Las Vegas, like you have a lot of crews in Las Vegas, so you know, people are coming there to shoot all the time. So it's very well trained. Mm-hmm. very well oiled machine so um which is crazy because like the community out here like it's so fractured to be honest with you like i'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit because i wanted to hear about uh the new york community but just to give you a heads uh-huh. up like the, the the what i've been hearing on the podcast you're like the 37th episode technically but this uh, this is actually will be um released during nab just to get like a heads up also um okay so like what i've been hearing from a lot of people out in vegas is like the film community here is fractured it's like mm-hmm. just different clicks and stuff like that. So it's just a oh, weird, sure. mm-hmm. it's a weird like thing with people here. And it's just like the filmmaking, just, I don't know. There's something about it that doesn't feel like there's a, there's a style where they're trying to steal LA style and try BLA, but mm-hmm. no one knows how to really make that style, I guess. I mean, this might be mm-hmm. tangent mm-hmm. me, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I know that like there's definitely going to be clicks in every town. Yeah. Um, and you know in new york right 
you have a lot of, and I think part of what you're saying about the New York style of filmmaking and, yeah. um, is that we have a lot of documentary filmmakers in New York. So yeah. that brings, that's more that catch a catch can style, that more kind of improvisational style. And so you have a lot of doc editors and you have a lot of doc shooters and a lot of doc, you know, just production people mm. who will sometimes moonlight on, on narrative jobs. And yeah. so what you will have that kind of ethos that's a little looser mm-hmm. um, coming across. But I find in New York, the community is split also. There's the documentary people, the TV people, mm-hmm. the feature film people, and the advertising people. And so yeah. like some people only work on commercials. And some people only work on docs. And, and so it's hard. To, someone like me, I know a few other people like me, but who like kind of work in different worlds. Yeah. But it's like, generally like the crew is like, oh we're a tv crew you know yeah. we're, we're in the union we work on these shows like next season we're gonna get another show and that's like its own thing as opposed to the indie film community is like a lot of people who have to or have carved out this little niche of mm-hmm. doing a little work for some of those different worlds but like you're just kind of independent you're just kind of on your own yeah and um i think that's like I, I that probably that dynamic probably exists in other cities, but I certainly have observed it here in New York. Well, I mean, you're in the communities you're talking about, though, are they fractured from within too? Like, where the film community, that small film community, that I'm sorry, that not the small film community, but that uh, film community in New York, they're not fractured from within. Are they fractured from within? Like, I mean, obviously the documentary and the filmmaking ones are separate, but within right. that filmmaking one or in that documentary one, they're not fractured more. I mean, they probably are. I mean, I yeah. think it's natural that people have people they like and people they don't like. Yeah. You know, I think that's part of it. Or, um, you know, uh, like a friend of mine is like one of the biggest gaffers for non-union jobs, mm-hmm. you know, in the commercial world. And it's basically his crew or this other crew that yeah. are going to get the non-union commercials. Yeah. And so he's essentially in competition with those. Now, some of, the, you know, his second electric or best boy might mm-hmm. work with the other crew sub in a day, day play on, on different jobs. So there is like kind of cross pollination, yeah. but, um, you, it does get territorial, I, I would guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was in new Orleans that summer, I was talking to this one guy who was a grip yeah. and he was, I was like, how many crews are there in town? And he's like, just one man. And I was like, wow. Like, so if you're not on that crew, it's really hard to get work. He's like, it's tough, you know? And, yeah. and there's, you know, seven guys who work on every Hollywood movie that comes to town. And mm-hmm. then there's like, the fringe people who are trying to get on the job with somebody sick, you know? Yeah. And, and, um, so that's like, and some towns it'll be more like that, like divided because there's like one group of people who's eating and, and everybody else. Yeah. Um, but you know, you want it to feel, I think what you're saying, and I agree like more communal, like yeah. where are the safe spaces? Where can we build relationships? Where can we like say, Hey, what unites us is, is, bigger than what separates us mm-hmm. um and i think you know some brands i think some rental houses do a good job of like having happy hours yeah. and having like parties and events and stuff nab is a great one like yeah. where you just kind of break down some of those walls a little bit and, yeah. and get to build relationships with people and um to me that's important work i know it doesn't show up in on screen mm-hmm. or necessarily on you know, like a balance sheet, like why is this good, you know? Um, But I think those types of things, parties, barbecues, happy hours, 
these kind of informal events enable people to meet and build relationships and, and recognize one another. Well, and they're very important. Uh, I agree also, but let me tell you. And this. podcasts. And, yeah. <laughs> and podcasts <laughs> yeah. too, by the way. Hey, so um, let me tell you this too about the Vegas film community. I'm going to shit on it a little bit because I always I, I have to always shit on it at least a little bit because I have to I want to throw out the. Well, it's it's I'm not shitting on it in a, in a sense of like shitting on. I'm shitting on it in a sense of like I want to get down to the root of evil. Or I want to get down to like yeah. what what are the strengths, what are the weaknesses, what are the, like things that we can do to get better and stuff like that. So that's I'm gonna get I'm gonna ask you that as well too in, in New York. And we talked about it a little bit too, but like you know, we have a mixer in Vegas. It's the same people always going. There's no one ever new. Right. People are right. like, there's people out here that are like, I don't want to deal with these people in the film community because they're all working with the same people. There's, it's just like uh-huh. it's not. They aren't giving people opportunity to work with new people. Right. I feel like, or like someone like because I believe in growth as a actor, director, anyone is to work with different people. Like, yeah, I might work with mm-hmm. you all the time, but at the same time, if you're my director. Like, and I'm your DP, for example, like, you know, you're not mm-hmm. going to always want you, maybe you don't want to use me in the next project. Cause you're like, I want to use someone else and learn the language of their, their filmmaking. And mm-hmm. like, I can grow and mm-hmm. you can grow as a filmmaker. That's what I want to mm-hmm. see more of. And in, in, in that mm-hmm. regard too, I want to see growth where we can all get better and not just like, yeah. cause like, again, like, you know, if, if, if another example is like if my friend over there is making films with the same person and he can't direct for shit and he's still going to direct the st- person and the person's a really good actor and has a potential like that person's not going to grow <laughs> like right right so yeah that, that's yeah. how i feel I mean, about I, that yeah um i mean i think like um and i don't i don't i'm just gonna sound like harsh you know yeah, no and, but, and um, i'm, I t- I, I'm yeah. not t- i i don't yeah, no, I, I respect all opinions it, to be honest yeah. so i'm not gonna see but harsh I think part, part of the way to break it down is to be the one that breaks it down yeah there's no other way. And, yeah. and so, I mean, to me, that's your, your podcast talks about community and, uh, you know, you're selling the t-shirts, you're, you know, building a, a listeners, like yeah, have a live podcast, have a, you know, have a, you know, like event, like mm. there's, there's no like one person that's going to sit there and say, I'm going to make things better. And in fact, most yeah. people are like, sitting there saying lazy being like how can i take from the thing that's already there yeah and um like it's much harder to build something from scratch yeah but it's also much more valuable and so like part of like doing anything you know building an audience building a community whatever is it's like just a raw effort you know uh i was talking to my mom about this woman she knows that started like this kiting day mm. at a park in Boston. And now oh, it's cool. been going on for 40 years. And it's just like, you know, everybody comes out and flies their kites on this day. And like, she just started and promoted it and blah, blah. And then it's become like a whole thing. And like, there was no like commission of people saying, you know, we need a pipe, a kite day out yeah. here. And there's also no commission of people saying, you know what we don't need is someone to start flying kites around here. You know, it was like somebody mm. just, decided that that's what they wanted and a lot of people benefited from it thousands of people over the years yeah so i think part of anything is finding out a way uh and i could do better i keep you know i've done all this stuff with ken affinity cameras and i yeah. keep being like I've, I've done a couple like happy hour type things hey everybody come yeah. and take a look at the camera but i keep saying i'm going to do more and then i don't yeah and part of the reason i want to do it is the exact thing that you're talking about it's like hey let's like kind of cross some of these streams and and build some relationships and and meet informally 
it's one thing to be on set, you know, mm-hmm. things are so high stakes on set, you know, yeah. you're spending thousands of dollars a day, you know, on a big shoot, you know, I mean, yeah. I think I had a shoot and we were spending like $10,000 a day, $20,000 a day. And so on that type of environment, like you can't have people that you don't trust yeah. because the, the stakes are just too high, you know, whether it's your client or your budget or whatever, mm-hmm. it's like if something goes wrong, like you have to be able to stand up for it. And yeah. so you're not, not going to put somebody you don't know into that situation. And that's why people like tend to not tend to be very conservative about who they hire for better or for worse. And so I feel like those kind of informal things are where you get to know somebody and you're like, Oh, you're hanging out getting drinks with somebody yeah. a few hours of cracking jokes or getting dinner. You see him at another event. It's like, oh, I, could, I could work with, I bet I could work with that. Yeah. And, um, and so that's how it works. I feel like, um, mm-hmm. Like even my DP on 72 hours, my feature, um, I met him my friend Bradford Young was moving, he was leaving New York and he had a going away party. And I met yeah. Sean at Brad's going away party. And so, uh, but Sean and I had like been friends on like Facebook. We never even met, you know, and, and on, we were LinkedIn or we were on like two or three social networks. We kind of like, maybe he'd heard of me, I'd heard of him, whatever. And so we'd, I just would see his name or see him in a picture. And so then at the going away party, I just walked up and I was like, Sean, he's like, Rafi. And we just started talking like we were old friends and we kind of hit the ground running. And six months later, I had an opportunity to do this feature. Yeah. And I was like, oh, like, I think I should call Sean. Like, yeah. he's, he would be perfect for this. And so it was like all these things had led up like this, this social media friendship and then yeah. we met at this one thing and then maybe we saw each other one at a time and then he came and like interviewed with the people but it was it was all very kind of informal mm-hmm. but it was because i had seen him and like in those informal spaces that i felt comfortable saying yeah. okay this is the biggest project of my life and you're the person i want to have helping me shape these images yeah um so i think that part of it is the you know and some people are really good at that at the mm-hmm. community aspect and at breaking down barriers and, um reaching across and saying hey may, you know might be good to have this person here um but it's it's vital work and it's just uh to the extent that anyone is willing to put in the time doing it mm-hmm. uh, i think it benefits not just them but a wider community of people um and i think that uh if you can see yourself doing that type of work or any of your listeners can see yourself kind of yeah. bridging those gaps or having informal shoots or just meet and greets or whatever it is yeah. going work. That's what it takes to get people to get to know each other so that they can potentially work together on another project. Yeah, definitely. You're, you're right, man. And I, I would, I mean, personally, if I could, I would love to take up the reins, but I don't want to be to get biblical, the Jesus Christ, of of that, <laughs> I want to be more the John the Baptist and be the guy leading the way in the sense of making the way for Jesus. So, like, hopefully, a listener's listening to this and they're like, "No, he's like, you know, he's making some good points and relevant points, and like, I'm getting great information." But like, we need to change this also. So, like, I I feel like that'd be too like. There's a lot of pressure, like trying to get it out there, and I mean, I, I mean, thri- like thriving in pressure is like a. a pressure situation to begin with <laughs> like so right, i right. i don't want to like i mean shit like it, it's very tempting yeah. to do it but at the same time I'm yeah. like i'm a little like well i have like i have a crazy full-time job and like i'm trying to get this podcast going i'm like i don't know if i can right. put that 
into place being the guy who's doing it. So hopefully someone who's listening will do that, hopefully. So listeners, if you are, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, invite me to some party. I'll definitely drink up your beer. Thank you. Um, No, but I mean, (laughs) I I mean, I think uh, like really the the thing is you don't have to win the whole ball game on one swing of the bat, you know? It's like, it can be small. It could be like 10 people, yeah. you know, and the next time it's 15. And if, if you do that like three times a year for 10 years, people will remember. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be like, you know, I'm going to unite the entire city under yeah, my I, banner I, I, today. You know, I know, yeah. but I'm very and ambitious. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, I mean, but it's that part of film. And I think, you know, what another thing I think really helps the community mm-hmm is the film festivals. Yeah. Is, uh, and See, you know, I, every I, city has, I, I'm going to yeah. be, I'm going to be, I'm going to be honest about this, man. I I have a uh-huh. gripe with film festivals, like low, like more or less local ones in general, because maybe it's just how I perceive it and how I, uh-huh. um, re- realize it. Like, you know, I've seen film festivals out here in general and there's a billion, there's like a, a shit ton. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, right. it's always the same people like putting into it. And like, you look at the nominations or looking at a category and only two people are in it. And I'm like, obviously you have a 50, 50 chance to, you know, win the, the category. So why aren't like, I'd rather see filmmakers locally. This is more of a local mm-hmm. scale thing is going mm-hmm. to different States and like trying to submit to different States because I feel like you're going to mm-hmm. get a better gauge. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, in DC, when I was in film school, there were two or three film festivals. I played in all of them. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so they were like, they were just, they were kind of clickish, you know, the DC independent film festival crew was like one group of people. Mm -hmm. And but some of them you'd see at film fest DC, which is like the international film festival. And then there's one called Rosebud in Virginia. And so, um, but you know, it's like the people that you would see at all three, yeah. right? Are the people who are just really interested. And especially if they work in the industry, yeah. then it's like, oh, you have something in common with that person. Well, let me ask you this um, too, uh, yeah. about going to film festivals. Like when you went to the film festivals, like mm-hmm. were the seats kind of like full or were they empty? Was it just the 10 people that were in the movie that were there? Or was it like a lot of people there? Like people that are interested in seeing the movies? Because right. I mean, it just, yeah, it depends on the festival. I mean, right. some festivals, the good ones do a really good job of promoting mm-hmm. and drawing an audience. Right. If yeah. Nobody comes out. You shouldn't have a film festival. Right. Yeah. So, um, well, that's why I see so online. That's, that's yeah. the crazy thing. Yeah. That's why I see online in the yeah. local film festivals. Like it's the people that were in the movie that are seeing the film on the big screen. It's like no one else yeah. is in there. So it's like, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, you know, well, it, you know, a, a better festival, like, you know, Sundance people yeah. come from all over the world. Oh yeah. I've been there. Sundance, yeah. It's great. Right? yeah so like the the highest level you know then it does attract an audience and every screening is full and at the lowest level there's nobody there and the room sucks you know so Mm -hmm. you're trying to get into the festivals that are good enough where they're gonna have an audience of people who just like movies who are coming out in addition to the filmmakers in addition to the cast and crew but like um i did a thing once in dc like my short film that i did was like we just for whatever reason like uh it became like a known like a lot of people knew about the project because yeah. i just either advertised it a lot or I promoted a lot and uh you know i told my producer when we started working on it i was like look i want to get into the washington post yeah and so we were like all we started we were shooting in august we started in march like prepping yeah. for the film like sending out flyers blah, blah, blah. yeah 
And sure enough, like he made it happen. Like midway through our shoot week, the Washington Post came out, photographed us, did an article on the paper. That's dope. But like a lot of people knew about the, the film. Mm-hmm. And so uh, like a year or two later, I mean, I finished film school and uh, it had played at festivals and all this cool stuff was happening. But, you know, you just want to keep showing it. It's a cool project. Um, and these other two filmmakers that I knew, one was a grip and, you know, but one was, uh, they both kind of worked in Genie, but, you know, yeah. I knew them. They were more friends than I was. They were like, man, we should just all put together a screening. Just all. And so we just approached a theater in town and they had a, on Wednesday nights, they would either rent out or it was like 400. It was like a, it was affordable enough for three of us mm-hmm. that we could, you know, we could rent it out and then it was like all of his actors and his crew came and all my actors, my crew. So three of us did that. And then it got listed in like the independent, like the Washington city paper, which is kind of oh. like, you know, the local, you know, like oh. you just email them like, Hey, can you list this event? And they're like, films, what, you know, it was like, we, it was like a one line listing yeah. among like, you know, 20 other things. But the day of the screening, it was packed. Like we, we, packed out the whole thing and both yeah. guys were like you know like oh these aren't my people you know but it was like my film had like a slightly bigger audience because we had been in the paper so people mm-hmm. had heard of it but so we just you know i just remember there was like a line of people like waiting to buy popcorn i was like oh this is so cool yeah um but that was just something we just did it's like the three of us just did we just put our audiences together screened the movies together mm-hmm. and it was great people laughed yeah. and enjoyed the films and so like it can be like that. Like it doesn't always have to be, you know, especially like so many universities have like a screening room. You yeah. know, it's like, Oh, can we just put it on HDMI and promote it and bring people out? Like sometimes you just want that, like just, you know, hometown, you know, just your, your, your crew. Like, I think it's important. Like gummy bears are short. Um, there's this place in um, Brooklyn and it has like, they took like old, car seats they ripped out like back seats of cars and um like out of like hondas and out of minivans and stuff like that and so they had like maybe it's like 40 50 seats but they have a a big screen like you know 10 feet wide 15 feet wide yeah. and then they have all these car seats and they have a bar like it it, it, it actually the place actually got shut down by the cops that's a whole other story but for a while <laughs> it had like uh, you know they had yeah. this many kind of ad hoc theater that they had built and mm. Even when we finished that short, we just rented it out for a night and brought out the crew and had people invite other people just because yeah. you do all this work. You want to see it on a screen. You know, you don't want to just Definitely. see it on your, your phone or yeah. send out a link and, you know, passwords like, hey, check out my movie. It's like yeah. you, you got to just have that experience of seeing it projected. Uh, even if it's just for your crew and your friends, like yeah. I think it's very yeah. important spiritually. Even when you're a one man crew or a two person crew, because then it's like just the two <laughs> people, <laughs> like you know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just asking. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's. I just I feel like that part, like yeah. a film, isn't complete until it's seen by an audience, mm. right? It starts yeah. like as one person's idea and it finishes like with a lot of people watching. Yeah, and so I just like. uh like even with my feature, seventy two hours of Brooklyn Love Story. Yeah, we would played all over the country, played in a bunch of film festivals, and we still never played in Brooklyn until this past summer. Yeah, and so that was like to me, like when the film was finally complete. Like we were already on Stars, yeah, and hadn't even had a screening in Brooklyn, and it's like when we finally showed it, it was just in a park. Twenty thirty people came out, 
is, but it was projected and people watched it at night. And it was like, boom, now the movie is home. Like we landed this thing. Yeah. So I feel like just in the life of a project, like seeing it with the audience is like when it's done. And the audience is like the whipped cream on top. Like they're going to yeah. add whatever flavor they add and you can control how it's shaped or whatever. Yeah. Like that's the I like end this of metaphor. the movie. I like this metaphor. Now I'm hungry for ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> but do you, like when so you're, when you're also, when you're saying like, you know, when I came back to Brooklyn, like, you know, do you feel that that's complete? Like, do you feel like the movie, any movie you make, let's say like if it, even if it's in like, you know, Florida, you made a movie in Florida. Like if you go around the circuit, like from like, you know, Texas and, you know, California, New Mexico, New York, and then it hits Florida again. Do you, is that when it's complete? When it hits the home state last that you filmed it in? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I think it's probably different for for every project. Like I, I did mm-hmm. um, last year, I did a documentary, and so we shot a was week that the in legacy Fort one. City. Legacy lives on, yeah. yeah. So we shot a week in Atlanta, a week in Detroit, mm. a week in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and then our last week in New York. And so for that one, like uh, it was sponsored by Prudential, mm-hmm. but it aired on TV. It's hour long project. It was you know my biggest project to date, both budget wise mm-hmm. and scale wise. Yeah, And, um, that was, you know, we had a couple of really nice screens. We had one at uh, New Jersey performing arts center, which is, was really nice theater, but that was like potential employees only. So that was kind of like a dope venue. And they had like these 30 foot banners and that felt like, Oh shit. Like this is like, you know, like decked out. Um, but that was like, didn't quite feel like, like the actual, you know, like it landed and then we played a few weeks later at a film festival in Miami. And so we had still some of the same banners, not the 30 foot ones, but like, you know, like eight, 10 foot ones. And, you know, it was like in a movie theater. And so to me, like just playing at that festival for an audience, it was, you know, packed into the theater. Mm -hmm. Uh, A couple of people told me they cried. Like, I was like, okay, we did it. You know, it's out there. People saw it. Like, you know, it's no longer just an idea in my head. Like it's, yeah. Gotcha. Now, now, um, when you made that, that was with the mob, the uh, Confinity uh, Mavo LF, right? Yeah. Now, was that the first project? Like the was that the first project you did, used it with? Uh, so I shot. Uh, was or, the second project I shot on the Mavo LF. I did a, a short film, sci-fi short. Yes, the reconnection. Right before, yeah, reconnection. Yeah, yeah back to back. So, um, basically. I mean, I was on set for Reconnections, mm-hmm. which is the first project shot on the Marvel OS. Yeah. I was on set um, in upstate New York, and I, you know, don't have phone coverage up there. It's a like yeah. really remote area, but then finally came back near the internet, and I got this text, and it's this guy, like, hey, call me. I might have something for you. Yeah. And he left a voicemail, or, or I think I texted him back or something, but he was like, hey, you might have something for me. I wrote back, I was like, oh, I'll be too busy. You know, editing yeah. my short won't be able to do it. And then my producer was like, "Who is that?" And I was like, "Oh, you know, this guy is yeah. interested in hiring for a project." I told him I can't do it. She's like, "What? We need the money. Call him right back." <laughs> 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 and so, like, I I did leave him a voicemail. It's like, you know, no service. I was like, "Hey, man, you know, my producer says, mm. or maybe I text him that maybe we could fit it in." Um, and so it was like two days later when I yeah. got back to New York. I talked to him quickly that led to us pitching and it was, it was basically like we rolled off of reconnections and we just started legacy lives on like back to back, same yeah. DP, same producer, um, a couple of the same PAs. 
so it was just like I almost like just kept the ship moving. It, yeah. it, it didn't feel like exactly one production, but mm. a lot of the same people wor- worked on both. I, I mean, it's two different genres too, as well. So I mean, like, it, did you have to like sh- like get your mindset a little bit differently for each one? Because one's a short sci-fi film, the other one's a you know documentary piece. Like, is your is your headspace like how how did you go from one headspace to another, or like you know yeah one frame of mind to another? I mean, I think um, I just practice. You know, yeah. I've just done a lot of a lot of work over the years and uh so with the documentary stuff like going all the way back to the thing where i was interviewing bands like mm. i've just interviewed hundreds of people over the years like yeah. at some point you know i've just done it a lot of times and so i haven't approached something like how i would like to do it but uh it doesn't you don't have to feel as nervous about like how will i do this story yeah. you know um and um you know, the narrative stuff I feel like sometimes is more challenging because the way you design a shot, the mm. way you think about stuff is a little bit more technical than the documentary yeah. as far as how you film it. You know, mm. documentary a lot of times is just like being there and getting, if it's in focus, like you're, you're in the good, you're, you'll be fine. Whereas with um, with narrative stuff, there it's like a little more technical. Yeah. So things are on a, uh, you know, there's a higher standard of execution. Mm. But, um, you know, so as far as like going out and shoot, shooting, I think docs can be easier. There's also the time crunch and less budget and all that stuff. So there's there's things about it that make it difficult. Um, yeah. But I'll say one thing that was new for me, a thing I hadn't done before was in the documentary, mm. we were, there's one part of the interview and we basically interviewed this woman and her mother and they had this mother started a business when she was, a kid and and had some tough times but it yeah. eventually did really well and the daughter is now like a very successful in business she, yeah she became a millionaire by the time she was 30 like she was like really um awesome businesswoman and so part of the interview she's saying well i learned a lot from watching my mother growing up yeah and um so we wanted to have this moment of them just kind of talking about that process of growing up and learning and you know and uh and mom loves the daughter, daughter loves the mom, and, and this warmth of their relationship, but also it has this kind of intellectual trade that they've had their whole lives. And uh, and so in shooting that, at some point, I didn't want it to be like a documentary where I'm just interviewing them, you know yeah. what I'm saying, where we just have the camera. And, and so I just started talking to them almost like they were actors. It yeah. was a weird, I was like using my narrative skills in a documentary context yeah yeah. um but i was just like i was like you know could you could you tell your mom how you feel about this and just like the way i was talking to her was more like how you might talk to an actor but it was also in the humanity of the moment it wasn't like asking a question and waiting for the answer it was just like we're trying to create this life that you guys built up and it's so beautiful for us to witness we want the whole world to see that in the way that we film it Mm-hmm. And so I felt like everything about that shoot day started to feel narrative yeah. uh, and, and it crescendos with the, they have this big, you know, warm, beautiful hug yeah. at the very end of the scene. And, and it's in the movie and, you know, two people told me they cried when they saw that. And, and even the editor, you know, was like, he, he was cutting and he's, he's like, Ralph, uh, he's like, is it okay if I extend this hug right here? And, and I was yeah. like, I was like, why was that? He's just like, he's like, man, people need to see this. 
<laughs> so it was just like it was just like this example yeah. of here's this beautiful emotional scene and it does it disservice to just shoot it like mm. a disinterested camera guy with it so you know it's like this isn't interview time anymore this is like a scene of like what how beautiful a family can be and, and not everybody's lucky to have family like that so yeah. here is one and uh and so we shot it like that and i think because we did people feel it when they're watching it and um so that was like this moment where i was like oh you can use some of your narrative skills in the nonfiction work like it was a yeah. kind of an eye-opening moment for me of like you're still telling a story yeah, yeah. it still has that convey emotion it can't just be you know like this is this and that is that you know yeah, there's, yeah. there's a you're a storyteller no matter what kind of film you're doing. Yeah, it's adding, I mean, you're the blending that narrative in there is like adding a flavor to it in a sense. You know, it's, it's adding yeah. a new dimension, like what you're, what you're talking about. And it's, it's, that's fascinating. Like, I never really thought about, like, you know, doing TV and, and you know, just thinking about what net documentaries are. I never thought about, you know, what you're telling me about the whole, nar- like, you know, adding that flavor of narrative to it where you're, like, kind of speaking to them as actors because, like, they don't want yeah. you to really, like, stage anything on, you know, in news or anything of that yeah. nature. So it's just, yeah. like, it's, like, always, I always there, thought that. There's, there's a fine line, and yeah. ethically there's a very fine line because yeah. you don't want to stage something, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and so um, this, you know, I... I find that like if you start putting words in people's mouths yeah. and back when I was editing and I edited a lot of advertising stuff and it's shot in a doc style, but they'd be mm. telling the people what to say, you know? Yeah. And so it was like, you see that kind of that ethical boundary or that gray area certainly yeah. gets breached a lot. And sometimes you're like, wait, I don't know. I don't know if we should be saying that, you know, I don't know if, or, um, you know, I was editing something for a network once and, you know, this guy said something in an interview that he didn't even mean you could tell, you know, as an editor, you can always tell with footage if somebody's telling the truth or not because just their mm-hmm. body language, just the way they are, you're like, yeah, do yeah. I believe this person or not? And so the network was like, put this line in. He said it. It's in the transcript. And I'm like, the way he looks when he says it, everything about the yeah. way he says it, the kid doesn't believe it. You know, why yeah. are we putting this in here? So I think there are times where like, even with a pure, you know, and that wasn't staged like the, you know, that yeah. interview, there wasn't any, but like somebody took the wrong part of his soundbite and like made it into something that isn't what the kid meant. And yeah. so I think like to me, to be truthful and honest as a filmmaker is like, your integrity is on the line. Yeah. Whether you're doing narrative or documentary, like if, are you being true to the story? Are you being true to your moment? Are you being true to the human beings that you're working with, whether they're actors or real people. Yeah. And like, if you can put that on the screen, a true emotional place and, and, and not put words into people's mouths and not betray people, it's going to make you a better filmmaker. Uh, yeah. So I, 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 I don't want to make it say that like, being a doc filmmaker is like telling stories out of whole cloth, but at the same time, you still are a filmmaker. Like, yeah. what is the scene about? Why are we shooting this? How can we influence, like, the emotional or take away uh, or give it the feeling that it should have this scene yeah. by the way we place the camera, by the lighting, by the angle, like, by the all of our tools as a narrative filmmaker still apply. It's just, mm-hmm. um, 
you have to do that in an ethical way. I hundred yeah. percent believe, but at the same time, like you can't not be a filmmaker. It's not like, you know, the Google maps calendar, should, <laughs> you know, Google maps camera should be filming a doc, you know, that, like, that'd be insane. Security footage. <laughs> <laughs> it's a 360 camera and you're just like seeing it play out the whole time. And you're like, Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And like, even, you know, just, it's, always fascinating too because even like but in like going to staging it too you have to kind of stage a little bit because like if someone tells you retells you something and like oh i grabbed the book off the shelf you have to kind of make them grab the book off the shelf sometimes just to show it or something so there is a weird it's like you know talking about the ethics it's like kind of weirdly enough you kind of got like stage it to a sense too so yeah if you need you need that shot of the book yeah you gotta get the shot of the yeah, book. Yeah, you know yeah, what are we I'm doing like, here? I stage it. Yeah, I'm like, uh, <laughs> yeah. You're like, my, like you know, what? Um, I think the first time I did a news story, I was like, wait, this is my ethics is like all like, wait, you're not supposed to stage shit though. I'm like thinking like, oh man, I'm gonna get in trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's it, it it's interesting. I mean, I think like learning those yeah. skills, but also, I mean, I think what's cool about news mm. is that you learn exactly what you need. To yeah, tell like the bare minimum. Yeah. I mean, I think Steven Soderbergh used to be a news editor. Yeah. And Roger Deakins used to be a news DP, uh, and Deakins, yeah, Deakins said that like shooting news is like it taught you to be fast. Like you know, the, the thing is happening, like a yeah. march, a protest, something is happening like right now. The, the perpetrator is walking out of the courthouse. Mm-hmm. The shot has to be in focus, framed right. Like I got to be in the right position. Yeah, like you know, like news is like great training for like just perfectly clean storytelling. Yeah, and then like as you kind of like, like you say you take all those skills and then you apply them to your independent film. Mm-hmm. Like, all right, this is the bare minimum. These are the news shots I need to tell the story. Yeah. And then like to make it better and more fluffy and have more style and blah, blah, blah. What if we did this? What if we did that? And those are your dream level. Yeah. But like at the very basic, you have to have like the clean A to B to C type yeah. of stuff. So I think anything that can teach you how to be, like a pure storyteller, visual storyteller, yeah. Like gets your fundamentals down as far as like, okay, now what am I going to do next? How am I going to make it yeah. crazy? How am I going to make it beautiful? Yeah, De- yeah, definitely. I mean, Sean. I think Sean Bobbitt also was it uh, a news photographer as well. Um, if I'm if I'm oh. not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think everybody does something. Yeah, you know? I mean, it's it's all like weird. It's like you know, I never thought I would do news to be honest, and like I ended up in that field because I needed a job at the time. When I was out. I mean, because I worked at a production studio, and then we were close. They were closing, so I ended up at the news, and that's how. Right. You know, and I I've learned so much, like you said, like you know, quickly shooting and getting clean shots in that regard. That it's just something. It's 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 and also it's like two different minds. Yet they're like think two different ways you're like different brains yeah but like that speed and yeah. that you know like all of that is like super valuable i mean they're like going back to you know for me interning at the post house yeah. and learning avid and all this stuff it's like like i do a similar thing from editing it's like yeah like i know how to like get from a to b yeah. i feel like faster than a lot of editors just because i was trained you know like some people are like, how do I edit all this footage? And I'm yeah. like, well, you take this shot. <laughs> and, um, and just look so at it. Just, just, like, just look at it first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I think there's no yeah. wasted 
energy. I think a lot of times when people are starting out, you feel like, oh, I'm just spinning my wheels here. This isn't what I'm meant to do. I'm supposed to be a big time director. Why am I just sitting here intern? And, um, and, but you gotta I be humble. Like, you gotta be humble and like, take, yeah. eat that humble pie. Yeah. Cause, you know, all those things, like, um, I interned in 2002. I interned on a Spike Lee movie. Oh, nice. And so I was in the editing. I was in like a back room. B. I was in like a, it was in the Technicolor building in Manhattan, and it was, it was cool. It was like floor-to-ceiling pizza boxes with like fil- or film cans. Everywhere you can look, just old film cans. The whole floor yeah. smelled like chemicals because they were literally processing every <laughs> show in New York, yeah, like yeah. Sex in the City at the time or uh, Rescue Me, the Dennis Leary show. Or, yeah. like Whatever was on TV was getting their rushes done at Technicolor and art movie. And so um, I was just in this tiny room, like cutting the dailies, you know, yeah. like, uh, like sinking them, you know, by hand. And, um, as oh me and one other, assist, you know, one other intern and the yeah. guy was really mean to us all day. What are you doing? You know, he would yell at us, Rafa, you're late, you know, like every day. And, uh, and, uh, that other intern turned out to be one of my best friends. Yeah. Uh, he edited two of my films. Uh, he was one of the editors on Legacy, the lead editor on Legacy mm-hmm. was on the documentary that I did 17 years later. Uh, he he was the one who got me the, you know, Gummy Bears, uh, the short film I did. He was the one who got me that relationship. He yeah. knew, knew Chris. He was like, oh, I know this guy. He's looking for a director. He's the one who recommended me for that. So mm-hmm. it's like three of my biggest projects he's been a part of. And we were just like interns getting yelled at you yeah. know, for, for a summer. And uh and so it's like, oh, at the time you'll think, oh, this isn't valuable at all. And it turns out to be one of my lifelong friends I meet out of that experience. Yeah. And it's also influenced my film career greatly. And that's, va- and that's very valuable <laughs> in, in turn. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Here, uh, another question too for you. What made you um, choose the Confinity uh, Mavo? I know you have the other, the four, Terra, the 4K one. But mm-hmm. what made you choose mm-hmm. that brand of camera? Like, what did you find fascinating about it that you're like, well, I, I like this. I like the, the, was it the look? Was it the use? Was it, what was it that was like, oh yeah, let's go with that. I mean, I think it was, it was the look to price ratio mm-hmm. that got me interested in Kenneth Kennedy. Yeah. Uh, and I can remember when I discovered it, like, like basically I'd wrapped my feature. Uh, we shot in 2015 and 2016, and so um, what did you shoot? Brooklyn was that uh, was that Brooklyn? So you- yeah, 32 hours of Brooklyn Love Story. Yeah. 72 hours we shot on a red okay. Epic, okay, and uh, with a Dragon sensor, and then we shot on. We got a grant from Canon, mm. and Canon said you can use any camera we have. So the C500 was their biggest camera at the time. Yeah, so they can use we can use C500 and any lens that we we have. Oh wow. So it's like, I was like, holy shit, you know, we can shoot on, you know, Canon's top of the line camera and lenses. Mm-hmm. And my DP was like, hold on, you know, he's like, I actually want to shoot in the red. And I was in my head, I was like, what? And he's like, he's like, I got a, a friend, he's going to rent it to us for cheap, like yeah. blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, I don't want to use the Canon lenses. I want to use these other old cook lenses. Yeah. Like, what is going on? He wants like, the cook look, man. Us. He wants that cook look. Yeah. <laughs> Thousands of dollars, you yeah. know, in my head, I'm like, this is a low budget feature. How can we spend thousands of dollars yeah. when we have one of the biggest camera companies in the world giving us everything they have, their best stuff for free. And so 
after that project, I really just started studying cameras and lenses like intensely for like a, a month and a half. Yeah. And just trying to learn like why he made that decision. Cause I went to my producer, I was like, is this, what do and he's like, Sean, you know, he's our DP. We chose yeah. him because we believe in his eye. Like, let's, let's see what he comes up with. Mm-hmm. So we ended up using the camera, the Canon cameras, the C500 for our nighttime exterior. Cause yeah. Canon has really good low light. Yes, and, yeah. and so we did all our uh, nighttime exteriors on those cameras. And then we used this one lens, the only lens we got from them was the 30 to 300 it was like a fifty thousand dollar lens oh my gosh and so they sent they sent us this awesome lens <laughs> and it was it was amazing yeah but uh but what sean said and he was right it's like you know look this is digital or these are digital sensors and these new lenses are very sharp and why he wants to use the old cook lenses is you get this more soft like kind of more dreamy look yeah and so uh there's one scene where we tried to intercut the canon lens and the old cook lenses and at the post house in the color session, they actually had to like blur and soften all the cannon and stuff to match yeah. the cook look. So that yeah. was like the first time, like coming out of that feature, I was just like, why did he make that decision? And so I just did an intense study of cameras and lenses and costs around that time, uh, early 2015 and also in 2016. And I saw this one video of the Ken Infinity. It was one of their older cameras, mm-hmm. uh, the Kenny Raw 2K, or maybe the Kenny Mini 4K. I can't remember yeah. which camera. But it's just like a clip of a guy. He's like on a motorcycle or on a moped at a red light somewhere. I don't know if it's China, some Asian country. And he just pulls up and he's just like, it's almost like you're shooting out of the passenger side window yeah. at the guy who pulls up next to you. And the shot looked great. Like, I don't know. It was the lens, the exposure. It could have been all those things. Yeah. But also because I was studying all these cameras at the time, you know, and, and prior to doing my feature, I'd watched a lot of stuff on the C500 yeah. and is this thing good enough? And so I, you know, read, I, I'd been studying cameras with the prior to the feature, but now afterwards yeah. I saw this one thing and I was like, wait, this camera's only 4,000 bucks. And it yeah. looks like that. Like, and, um, and so I just, that was like the thing that planted the flag in my head, but mm-hmm. I was convinced that I was going to buy a black magic camera. And so oh, I rented <laughs> the Ursa mini yeah. and I rented the, the black magic, uh, pocket. I, I, yeah. I had two jobs, like a music video and I, I had rented those and like this, they, the projects came out looking great, but I came out not convinced that I was going to buy the camera. You know, the you know, black magic, like, oh. that pocket camera, that first iteration and that first iteration of the Ursa mini mm-hmm. are like, they, they, I think they'd run off the older sensor that I have. I have the production 4K camera and the sensor, mm-hmm. like, there's an IR pollution. There's like, you know, you can't, cause you have to use IR ND filters or anything of that nature because you're gonna get like some brown, like, ish looking footage. And then, like, the dynamic range, if you hit it into the, like, sun or if there's a really bright highlight, it'll like, like, have a black pixel, like, burn in it. It's, right, right, yeah, right. And like you know, when they improved it with the Ursa Mini Pro and stuff like that, it just it looks it looks a lot better and a lot cleaner now and a lot. I I I mean, if you probably shot with the Ursa Mini Pro at that time, you'd probably you might be convinced. I don't know, maybe it's just my right. opinion. No, because I I shot on the production 4K camera, yeah. or maybe that was a year before the feature. I can't remember what year, but I yeah. shot something on that, and I was like, I thought I was going to buy it, and it was discounted and I, was, yeah. I rented it for this job and then i was like oh i don't think i'm gonna buy this 
Yeah. And then um, I kind of regret buying it. Ursa Mini. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love it. Yeah. But I love it, but like yeah. I, I regret buying it because, like you know, I can't go to eight hundred ISO. Because if I go eight hundred ISO, right. yeah. you know, it's it's, fix, it's, it's fixed done. noise it's pattern. Done. Yeah, I'm shooting yeah. four hundred the whole time and everything. I'm like even in low light situations. Like I'm just gonna blast a lot of light here. It's gonna look good. I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, all that, you know, I, I did the same thing in 2016. I yeah. had a job when we rented. It was the 4.6K Earth yeah. Mini. But it, it like had whatever the thing was, um, it was just like, and I've shot on so many cameras over the yeah. years, man. And so it was like the Canon Infinity, I kept coming back like, oh, there's mm. just one camera at the right price. And image, yeah. everything I see online looks really good. Yeah. Um, and so I took the plunge with the Terra mm. and, you know, I, I, I bought it and, um, it took a while because I was one of the, I think I was the first person in America to get it. Like it took a while to get. Oh. And, uh, uh, and so then I did a bunch of videos on YouTube, which got a really good response. Yeah. And, uh, and so I was like, Oh, this is fun. And they were coming out with the Mavo super 35 and then the Mavo LF. And, and I actually just, I was just, by that time I'd met them cause I met them at NAB. Oh, okay. And so it was like, you know, like they were like, are you interested in the LF? And I'm like, yes. And I'm like, like, could I shoot something on it? And so that was, it was just like total happenstance of just me having been early to the game with Ken Infinity. Yeah. Really liked the Terra, made some, some footage that I think a lot of people liked and asking them, Hey, would you let me shoot this, this, this short film? Yeah. And they said, yes. And, uh, and so that was like kind of how it all started for me. Uh, the LF, like, what was it like working with the LF? Because, like, you know, I don't really know many people who are working with like uh, large frame sensors right now. And you know, right? What What was that like uh, working with an LF camera? You know, in that regard, because everything's I mean, super thirty five in in general. Yeah, I mean, the first camera I actually ever owned was the Canon five D, which okay. was full frame. Yeah. So, like, for me, I never actually bought a camera. Like early on in my mm. jobs, was always you hire a DP and they had a camera yeah. or you rent a camera and it's kind of um, like that one time I, I rented the production cam 4k and a super 35. Yeah. I, I didn't realize that super 35 and full frame were different sensors. And so like I was putting on the same lenses I was using and I wasn't getting the same field of view from the scout. And I was just like, I texted a friend. I was like, is super 35 different from full frame. And he's yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> but isn't so super 35 like, oh. like this film standard in, in regards, like for making a film. So like I, I, it is. Yeah. I have argued to my one friend all the time. I feel like about back in the day about full frame and super 35. I'm like, dude, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Cause you're still going to get that like depth of field. You're going to get like, just move the camera two feet back and you'll be fine. Like it, super 35 yeah. is the film standard, not like full frames. Cool and all bro. But like, uh, yeah, we had like yeah. go back and forth all day. It's like a party trick. Yeah. yeah. Full frame is like a party trick trick super 35 is the standard yeah so um but you know what i what i like about shooting on the mava lf mm. is uh because i had a 5d for many years and shot a lot of stills in addition to a lot of video projects on the 5d that was just like how i naturally see the world like yeah you know that's i know what a 35 mil looks like. yeah i just know what a 35 looks like on that camera so shooting to the LF actually felt more like a return because I've been shooting on the Terra for two years. Mm. It's like, oh no, this is actually what I'm used to. Like this yeah. is how I learned. This is how I 
Um, so for me, it felt like um, kind of a return to home base, mm -hmm. uh, even though it's true that Super 35 is the, the standard. But if I had started on a T2I, say, uh, or a 7D, which have, you know, closer to the, the Super 35 yeah. field of view, then it's like, I might not, I might be like, whoa, what's happening here when mm -hmm. I, when I um, put on the LF? So, you know, I, I do enjoy that part, like yeah. the wider field of view and the shallower depth of field. It is a challenge on your DP, especially at, at low f-stops you know, yeah. super wide open f-stops but um you know the lf the model lf has a super 35 mode okay. where it just uses the super 35 part of the sensor yeah. so sometimes on reconnection on both uh and on the dock um there are times where we would just shoot in super 35 mode either mm -hmm. because the focus pull was going to be very difficult or because we wanted a you know to look like a, a cropped field of view like we it was a long lens or yeah. Whatever the thing was, we wanted to be like a little, use a subset of the frame. Um, so Super 35 mode is a huge asset uh, in, on the LF because you get access to the sensor itself has kind of a little bit better signal to noise ratio than the Mavo, the regular Mavo. So you get like kind of a richer blacks, um, even if you're using a, a kind of, Super 35 prop. Huh. Uh, also, in your video, because I don't ever take notes when I'm doing these podcasts. I like trying to go for it, but I have, I'm like, I have to go back to his videos real quick because there's something there's something I wanted to ask you. You said, I might okay. have missed this. Now, you said the camera was not holding you back. I'm, now, I was wondering, what is the thing that's holding you back? What like, what was it? I mean, I, I you know, I, I think you're always kind of holding yourself back. Okay. And so, um, you know, I think uh, there's a tendency, especially when you're younger, like when I was in film school, like this school doesn't, yeah. you know, should be doing this, you know, you know, like, like you kind of feel like everything is like, nobody is like giving you the runway you need to really take off. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so you'll, you'll kind of be like, I need a better camp, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but you can always point out a million examples. Like there's that movie called tangerine that played at sundance yeah they're shot on an iphone you yes. know so it's yes, like yes. there's always an example of something awesome shot on a camera that you and i could afford for 200 yeah. bucks that like played at some awesome film festival and um so i just tend to you know i feel like it's always so contentious people talking about cameras and they just want to argue about cameras all the yeah. time and I'm like, this camera is like way better than any camera I've ever had or wanted. Yeah. And I'm like lucky to be able to use it. And that's that. And yeah. so if I'm not a big famous DP or director by tomorrow, it's not the fault of the camera. It's, it's like my own thing. Gotcha. So I'm like very much in the camp of it's like, it's hard for you to get to the point where you're out shooting the camera there are certain cameras like on the 5d like after shooting on it eight years yeah i was like oh look now i can see like the limitations of shooting yeah. an eight bit or, or all the rolling shutter or you know whatever whatever but there are all these downsides to the 5d that you could feel it literally not allowing you to capture the type of images that you want to capture whereas with the lf I was never in a situation where I was just like, Oh my God, yeah, I can't get what I want. And it's the camera's fault. It was yeah. like, 
that that conversation is done. I mean, also, like you said, you shot it for eight years. I think after you know a handful of years, you need. I mean, there are better specs and all that stuff too in that regard. And you know, I mean, you're a storyteller too. You're you know the camera is important, but telling the story is more important. I think too. Absolutely. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and like the five D yeah. is like I still my favorite camera. Yeah. Or definitely bang for buck. I mean, mm-hmm. I worked on the camera for eight years. You know yeah. that one purchase, like look at how much like income or whatever I generated just by having that one device. So that, that camera um, made a lot of people filmmakers. Not gonna lie. Yeah. Like in yeah. general, just yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so any plans for twenty twenty that you can talk about? I don't want to get you in trouble and like say you know things that you can't talk about. But <laughs> any plans of twenty twenty that you're any, you know, hopes and dreams and wishes of what you want to accomplish in 2020? Uh, well, right now I'm working on my next screenplay, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, it's called get the Birkin and it's a kind of madcap, uh, kind of movie similar to snatch, like a bunch of different okay. criminals or a bunch of different people all yeah. fighting to get the same thing. And, uh, that's what I'm working on. And so I hope to have some version of that in front of whoever agents manager, like I want to try and raise mm-hmm. money and make it as a movie. But right now I got a sense writing. It. So yeah. that's the big thing I'm working on. Um, and then we have a summer screening, a much bigger one of 72 hours of Brooklyn love story in Brooklyn this summer. It's nice. going to be awesome. Um, sponsored by the city and it'll be, uh, you know, kind of on that summer schedule of, yeah. of public screening. So that's, that's also going to be pretty awesome. That's awesome. I have a question too about your um, film that you're working on right now. Um, have you ever thought of like what? What are your thoughts about like you know uh, Indiegogo and Kickstarter and stuff like that? Like, I- yeah, I mean, I think they're great. I, I've used Kickstarter uh, and Seed uh, and Spark. We used them seventy two hours oh, on, yes. on my feature, um, so I think we raised like thirty thousand uh, mm-hmm. or thirty two. You know, more than thirty thousand dollars, like twenty on yeah. one, fifteen on the other, something like that. Um, so I think those platforms are really useful. Yeah. I think, um, you know, part of being a filmmaker and it's like a part that nobody really wants to do is to raise the money and you don't get to make a movie unless you have a budget to do it. And so either you're writing something that you can shoot in your garage and there are a lot of great movies that you can shoot in your garage with nothing, or you are raising money to do something with a bigger budget like yeah. you're trying to do something that, that you can't be able to do and so um i think that like being able to demystify the fundraising process and not be afraid to do it is an important step for every filmmaker you yeah. know every now and then you'll look out and somebody else just does all that and you don't have to do anything mm-hmm. or it's like a client job where the budget comes attached to the work but like for your yeah. own personal storytelling you'll never be in a position where at least the beginning where you don't have to do anything and someone else is going to bring you a bag of money and yeah. just say go crazy. So finding a way to pitch your story yeah. is the first step in getting it made and uh, pitching it leads to raising the funds. So I'm like, I think those platforms are awesome. I wish yeah. in a way they had been around like earlier, like when I was in film school, my thesis film, I raised over twenty thousand oh, dollars wow. for for that film, and uh, 
now it's become like legendary. Like I'll go back to my film school every now and then. They're like, remember when you raised like a couple of years ago, I went back there. Like, remember when you raised 30,000? And then I was back last year. They were like, remember when you raised $50,000? Yeah. And I was like, I was $22,000, uh, which, you know, have, have they raised four, that every time you three. come back? Have they like, it's like the telephone <laughs> yeah. game. It's like now, it's yeah. Like, remember when you raised a hundred thousand dollars? Like, wait, when, <laughs> yeah. when did that come out? And, like a hundred. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Uh, but it was, um, so it's like, oh, back when I was in that project, well, Kickstarter was awesome. But yeah. you know, it's like we raised money um, without it. It's, it's like you're still going to need to raise money, no matter what, if you want to do something that's like like a little bit more ambitious than what you could just pull off with your friends, you know, buying them a six pack, you know. Yeah. And so, um, like, I think like being able to pitch your stories is what you have to do in Hollywood. You know, you're yeah. going to have to go in a room at some point and like sell somebody your vision. So it starts like wherever you are in your career is a good place to be to pitch and to get better at pitching and yeah. raising money because it's, it's a part of our industry. Uh, going back to our film dis- film community discussion real quick, um, I think mm-hmm. uh, what what are the strengths and weaknesses? I think you kind of touched upon a little bit of the of the New York film um, community, and then what do you think you guys can do to get? I mean, New York's the the mecca really i don't have to ask what you guys can do to get to the next level unless you have an idea or an opinion about that love to hear it also but like what mm. what are the what are those strengths and weaknesses we'll start with the strengths in your eyes i mean the strength is just that i feel like people are really resourceful mm. and um new york city is just such a wild beast yeah so to be able to tame the beast means you just have people who have that wild-eyed look in their eye like yeah this isn't crazy i'm with you you know so yeah. everybody is a, like a little bit of an animal and kind of a good way. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, another advantage of New York, and it's not necessarily of the community, but of the place itself, is that there's so many great locations in New York. And yeah. it's just, you know, you can catch the subway to the beach, you know, you have skyscrapers, you yeah. have neighborhoods, you have like all this ethnic, you know, any kind of, you know, oh, we want a scene with a bunch of guys from Nepal. It's like, guess where you have thousands of people from Nepal? in Queens, like you can shoot that. Um, so, um, there's like that part of New York is a, if you're willing to dig into it. Um, and I think luckily the crews, you'll find people like, Oh yeah, we shot on the stage or, Oh yeah, we shot in that, this block. And people will have experience in all of these different places. So community wise, I think the cool part is just exploring the city itself Mm -hmm. is such an adventure that you're kind of with other adventurers and people who are interested in oh checking out this thing i never filled on on this you know this part of town before um and so everybody is kind of in step with that idea of uh at least for the location work the stages there's less of them obviously but you know still it's like everybody's just kind of going out into new york and and bringing back the good so Mm. That's the good part. Um, as far as you were asking, what's the negative part of the community? Yeah. Oh, weaknesses. Well? We, uh, you know, whatever, whatever word you want to use for it. I know people like to use yeah. words. I mean, I said one of the weaknesses is, um, you know, there's a lot of people, so it's a le- easy to be anonymous, mm-hmm. you know, and, and feel like, oh, look, this is too big. Like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not ready for that, or nobody's going to call me, or yeah. you know, you can kind of like talk yourself out of a lot of things. Yeah. Like just by like just not stepping forward and, and saying call my name um and so i think it's it's easy to feel like you get lost in the shuffle sometimes um and i would say 
friend of mine pointed this out to me a few months ago, and I hadn't thought of this, but it's true. It's like a lot of times, because a lot of the work is freelance, like if somebody doesn't hold up to the job, Mm. then you just don't call them back for the next job. Yeah. But you never tell the person like, hey, you're fired. Or you never tell, so I mean, in a really bad situation, you do have to fire people. Like, yeah. You know, but like, that's like something if they like crash the car the third time, you're like, all right, I can't have this guy around anymore. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like a, a lot of times it's like somebody's just not up to snuff and you never get that feedback. No one ever gives you the feedback like, hey, yeah. you know, you could have handled that better. Hey, next time this happens, it's like you just don't hire them again. Yeah. And so a lot of times it's like you can, sometimes you can help somebody's career by just letting them know, here's what you did good. Here's where you can improve and, mm-hmm. and just giving them that feedback. But nobody ever does that. You just kind of just, you're like, oh yeah, fuck that person. Like, you know, yeah. um, I'll, you know. I'll see him when I see him, yeah. and uh, hopefully that's like unfortunately. Yeah, it's like unfortunately, like people have to figure it out on their own. There's not a lot of like, like you were talking about the crew member saying, "Hey, you're a grip, you can't test the camera." Yeah, it's like you know some stuff like that happens, but sometimes if somebody's just clueless, like you just, it's just like you know who brought that guy. All right, yeah. you know, um, don't call him again, type of thing. And um, I think people could do a better job of like mentoring mm-hmm. people coming up so that the, the crews are skilled, you know, cause yeah. the people coming up have to be skilled because you don't want them to drop a camera. You don't want them to do whatever. Yeah. Um, like that's like, to me, what's always one of the coolest and most fascinating parts about doing client jobs is a lot of times you travel yeah. and you're in a town and you got to hire, you got to pick up a sound person and a, you know, a makeup person. Yeah. That's like you hire them, you never met them, like maybe you had a phone call and it's like they show up on the day and you gotta start shooting that day or you have a scout day and then you shoot the next day. But it's like you just hire these people really off the internet. Like, you know, a person you know knows them or like you found them on Craigslist or whatever yeah. and you're paying them real money, but like you don't know if they're any good or not. Yeah. And so the cool part about film crews, especially when you travel, it's like, man, these people are good. Like I have the sound guy in Indianapolis who is awesome, man. Yeah. And so it's like that part of, Hey, like if you, everybody teaches everybody and, and reaches a certain standard, then it gives you that confidence when you travel yeah. to just step in and plug in five people you don't know. And they just fit right in and, and it's great. And and then uh, what, if you have any opinion on it, what do you think can get to next level? If there is one for New York being it is New York and being again, a, a, almost the Mecca of film in, in regards to LA, I mean, or second to LA or first, depending on who you are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's definitely second in terms of number of films. Yeah. I think it's, it's first in terms of whatever that style, Good filmmakers. Is, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, as far as what can, take it better i mean some of the things we were talking about earlier about community i think can help and i don't necessarily go to that you know no film school sometimes has like mixers and and things like that and it's like i'm always like oh should i go and then whenever i go i look see three people i know and i'm glad that i went but it's always like you feel a little i don't know what the word is um uh 
better you know like <laughs> yeah it's like it's like the part of meeting people and getting out and interacting mm. with the community makes the community better as a whole yeah. and you hear about people's projects um and so remembering to do that or having more people or having more stuff like that where the community feels approachable is valuable and um and i think that could more of that will definitely help yeah uh and then i have three more questions for you first question out of three is what is your favorite pizza place in new york um so i'm a big fan of joe's on Bleecker street all right yeah uh, hey yeah yeah um so there's john's yeah is also on Bleecker street yeah but john's is like Joe's is just like a slice, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, isn't Joe's the one? Yeah. The Bleecker Street isn't that the one? Oh my god, I'm, I know there's like a million Joe's also. I'm trying to think uh, off the top of my head. The Joe's is the one with all the movie stars that've gone there, right? Or is that a different Joe's? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I think I, I basically like Spider Man's character. Yeah, 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 that's the one I'm talking about. Works yeah. at Joe's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it technically is on Carmine Street. It's a Carmine at the corner of Bleecker. Yeah. I had a huge argument with a guy for like two hours over what's better, Joe's or John's. Oh, my, um, my roommate big... would fight you, man. My roommate's also from Jersey, <laughs> and he's like John's. Uh-huh. It's all about John's on Bleeder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm a Joe's person. Right. I like the New York life. That's my final answer. All right. I like that. I like that answer. I'll, I'll, you know what? We're friends now. <laughs> <laughs> Dope. <laughs> uh, next question is, uh, what's that last piece of advice nugget that you want to give to people that are listening? Bet on yourself. Okay. I like it. Keep going. Keep pushing. You know, there's always going to be headway. There's always going to be setbacks. There's always going to be doubts in your heart. Like, can I do this? How much longer can I keep doing this? This is what I love. Like, but it's like the rewards come when you keep betting on yourself and you keep believing, keep trying. I like it. Deep, insightful. And, you know, I i mean, I've had those discussions with myself where I'm like, why am I doing this? And I have to, again, talk myself out of it. And yeah, last question is, what is your social media? Uh, my social media is my name, uh, Rafi Rivero, on Twitter and Instagram. Those mm-hmm. are the main things I'm on. I'm on Facebook. I don't check it that often. But um, Twitter and Instagram are, are probably my main two. Um, but my name is very unique so if you google me i'll come up <laughs> uh and i have a website rafirivero.com where i have like some of my photography and, and writing and other work too well rafi i just want to thank you so much man i appreciate it uh to hear your story and get to talk to you and get to know you uh thank you is awesome yeah i cannot thank you i will never stop thanking you enough to be honest and if you get a million thank you texts like just randomly out of the year it's it's me probably <laughs> Uh, okay well well, i'll look forward to it (laughs) thank you for having me man this is really fun i I love talking about film yeah i I love uh i love building the community and and meeting other filmmakers so this is a blast for me too and uh again guys thank you for listening and remember to subscribe to the podcast we're on spotify google podcast i think still i have to double check i know i shoot these all in like you know in a three-month, four-month time period. And last time I checked, we aren't on Google Podcasts at the moment. But hopefully we are now by the time you listen to this. Um, we're on Anchor, uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio uh, is the app or TuneIn.com, uh, if I'm if that's correct. 
uh, website. Uh, also, remember we have the Patreon page. If you want to subscribe to that, go ahead. If you don't, that's fine too. I don't really care. As long as you guys are getting that material and getting those good nuggets of information from you know Rafi and other filmmakers and actors that were on this show as well, I appreciate it and I appreciate everyone. And I got like great plans for the future of this podcast. I do want to do live podcasting one day, so I can't do that without the you know support from you guys. And you know, you guys are my hashtag frame chasers and. You know, thank you again, Rafi. Thank you again, guys, for listening. And have a great day. Have a great week. Have a great month. Have a great year. Hopefully, we'll catch you next Wednesday on Chasing the Frame. Peace. Peace.